Hello, welcome back to the Non-Essential Workers Podcast, a left-wing podcast where we cover media bias, manipulation, various forms of bullshit, all of which are going to be especially prominent in this bonus episode as we cover the recent and extremely baffling both coverage of and result of the San Francisco recall election of their progressive prosecutor, Chesa Boudin. So there's a lot of layers to this. Uh, and we're probably talking to, about this to you later than you've heard from other people, but stick uh, stick with us. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, there's a twist first, to this story. First, we're going to disclose uh, relevance to ourselves. Uh, Chesa is our cousin, at least two of us, the, the two brothers mm-hmm. on the podcast. It's our second cousin. So we're not going to pretend like we don't have a, a familial tie there. Um, but To be fair, we've never met him. Right. We, don't, we haven't actually... <laughs> had much time with him if you're familiar with his background you'll you'll probably be familiar with why um but it is more of like convergent evolution like we both ended up on the same trajectory because of like basically good politics or ethics than any sort of long-term dialogue or discourse over why we would share those views uh that said um the the treatment that he has gotten and that progressive prosecutors in general have gotten has been interesting during the George Floyd uprisings, you saw this like massive wave of public outcry at police abuse and uh, at the especially heinous treatment of African-Americans and other vulnerable minorities. And for for a brief window, everyone, including corporations and the Democratic Party, was pretending as though we were going to do something about it. We were going to elect progressive DAs. We were going to reform the police and maybe do more body cams or maybe even defund some of their worst aspects you had cities talking about abolishing their police entirely or reorganizing them yeah i mean we flash forward not even two years and we are now in a moment where every major element of power is trying to undo not only all any any sort of progress even like theoretically that was made any sort of um ideological progress any sort of public buy-in to these ideas they want to double down on pure austerity and police state attitudes because it's just it's it's cheaper for them to do that than to provide social services so over the last month or two we have seen an enormous amount of coverage of a relatively minor election all things considered in san francisco i mean there's not that many cities where having a da election recall would get the kind of national press that this got um and what's more not many cities where it would get enormously overwhelmingly hostile coverage to an incumbent democratic da in a democratic city by largely supposedly democratic leaning press so we we selected a few articles to give you a taste of what this coverage is like and the various flavors of dog shit that they've been sort of feeding us on this um but before we before we get into it does anything else my, my co-host wanted to add to the general overview Yes. Uh, this election had virtually zero turnout. Something like 15% of the uh, vote-able public vote in this. So uh, let this be a lesson to all the people who think that the media controls everything. Uh, what really controls everything is moneyed interest groups, because that's the entire group that put together this recall election and got all their nimby-rich asshole cunts to uh, vote our cousin out. So it turns out that the national media doesn't affect dick, and they're really salty and jealous about that. So they just keep covering it anyway to, to poison people's minds. But actually, practically on the ground in San Francisco, virtually no one gave a shit. Virtually no one cared. Virtually no one who even voted the first time to get him in and to vote in Democrats and to undo Trump-era politics 
uh, gave a shit and showed up at all. Which is strongly consistent with almost every reason why these recall elections tend to become conservative uh, strongholds, because it's like, who the fuck goes out for weird, obscure elections? The vast Old majority of people. people are only are motivated when it's a big ticket and a, a whole bunch of different things to vote for. When it's a tiny, obscure election in the recall in the middle of nowhere, which is not even a holiday or anything, there's no time to do it, Like because we don't do that even for regular elections. Yeah, of course, you just get a handful of people who are hyper-motivated to get rid of someone they don't like old rich retirees who've been watching ads put together by billionaires saying your city's unsafe even though they fucking live in fenced off mansions that's who voted in this election and it's ironic because those old people probably were part of the 60s and part of the fucking hippies and understood what the civil strife was like and understood how overcoming that how important that was and understood how important civil rights was to living in a functional democracy yeah, and three quarters of them were right wing dipshits then too. Going, what's with these fucking hippies? All right, why don't they get a job like me? It's the same fucking people they were then. Aiden, any thoughts? I I think yeah, I think I thought like forty five percent of eligible voters turned out, which is wait really? Yeah, yeah. But I it just, was like, let me double check. How few eligible voters are there? I we talked about how relatively small San Francisco is as. In terms of, of cities of scale, um, but yeah, it, it, it just your your kind of both your points. It's just insane how overblown this has become in terms of a, a singular DA election for a city that is is far from being the largest um, and far from being the most progressive city in terms of like actual material conditions in all of California, and it kind of just goes to into this coordinated, well-moneyed network of, of narrative, trying to build um, California out as some kind of socialist paradise and nitpicking at every perceived failure, real or, or fake. And, you know, unfortunately, they got what they wanted in this case in terms of um, a, a negative outcome, thus, of course, uh, supporting all of their spurious accusations up to this point. Okay, wait a second. I thought... I was, I've seen very different data. I just went to Ballotpedia. And they said he only lost by 10 points and that over 222,000 people showed up for this vote. Yeah. That's much more in a much closer election than I thought the, what, the, what I had uh, by symbiosis learned from the media, which said he was like 65%, he got fucked, and very few people showed up. Well, I mean, like the New York Times is like writing their conclusions before all the ballots were, were in. So I'm not surprised at all that that's the osmosis perception because they didn't know what the answer was when they were already writing their conclusions uh, on the day of, of voting. It was pretty pretty ridiculous, as well as drawing conclusions about how all minorities in San Francisco overwhelmingly chased Houdini out of the city, uh, which, which they have yet to walk back as far as I've seen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not like it was close enough to be contested. He still lost, looks like, 55-45. But it was not a, a enormous annihilation and everyone in San Francisco, like, 80 to 20 opposed him or something. No. Yeah, that's relatively close still. It's a relatively close election, and that's even with enormous moneyed interests pouring every fucking resource they had, massively outspending him, into propaganda, both locally and nationally, to get him recalled. So if money did anything... Right. If we're assuming that all that money spent did anything, then presumably the margin would have been even closer. Sans that probably would have been elected like in the first case by a narrow margin and reelected by that same margin if it wasn't for all that money thrown at this. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to pretend as though this is some sort of mandate one way or the other. Um, 
but we'll, we'll get into that in, in more depth. Um, but I mean, yeah, like the, the, the coverage of this has been intensely negative, intensely scrutinizing. And there's a reason for that, which is that these national publications have always been against police reform. They have always been against meaningfully altering our justice system for the better. And even this really minor, like tweaks at the margins, progressive DAs, um, you know, bail reform, uh, creating alternative programs to deal with some things that we push on the police that we shouldn't. These are like the softest edge of reform. And even that's considered too radical for, you know, supposedly liberal institutions like the New York Times or self-declared liberal institutions like the fucking Atlantic, even though that's a joke. Um, yeah, so, so they're trying to use this instance to create a narrative, which is that, see, we were wrong to work ourselves into a frenzy during the George Floyd moment. We now need to walk back every possible form of, of reform or change that was in any way positive. And, and they're even trying to go as far as to tarnish it with the idea of like, this is a sinister Jewish conspiracy. Like they're using like right wing, uh, anti, like anti Jewish, anti communist, anti leftist talking points, sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly. Um, sometimes they're making even explicit direct references to Chess's family's past, which is sort of our family, not exactly, but it's, it's a branch of it. Um, to, to link him to the crimes of his parents or his grandparents, to link him to a radical history of leftism. It's, it's just, it's a lot of ad hominem shit, most of which doesn't even make any sense. Um, but it's, it's present, and it's present even in, in these major mainstream publications, which is really grotesque to, watch, to see, honestly. The entire premise of the recall is ad hominem. He's not responsible for the right. problems that people are saying are the problems are for. Like, the biggest problem people are having is that the police aren't doing their job. That's not on the DA. The police right. have a job separate from whether the prosecutor prosecutes the criminals they bring in. And yeah, and, and every article, literally every article focuses on homeless people, the homeless problem. And when you have a, a, a median, you know, single family property value of $2 million, what person with just like a little bit of, of chutzpah and get at it in this is going to be able to walk off the street and get themselves a home. It's so ridiculous. It's like, it's like, it, it makes it so much clearer when they don't just overtly say, just get them out of my view, get them off the streets. That's the gross part that, that there's no interest in, in housing these people. It, it's in the perception of people, often wealthy editorialists at uh, established papers, uh, being annoyed and grossed out by people that they have to see who are suffering because of, the incredible inequality in their city, which their DA is trying to address. But magically, and, these things don't happen overnight and certainly don't happen in a easily in a combative political environment where, as you say, Jace, the police are working against you. Your mayor is working against you. The real chef's kiss beauty is that all these articles are written by people who don't live in San Francisco or live outside of San Francisco. All the Marnie coming in for this is by fucking real estate developers who know that their property values will go up if they get homeless people off the street. So this, this isn't even like neutral people or just like your average normal people. The fucking one, uh, you know, Asian Democratic protester uh, who's been part of this uh, reform uh, uh, recall election is also like an associate on the like the Realtors Association for San Francisco. So like it's it's purely corrupt. 
there's, there's no even like they've actually tricked people to convince people. It's just corrupt actors trying to trying to profiteer and benefit directly off getting rid of him and his good policies. It's fucking disgusting. Yeah. And and it's like it once again demonstrates the ridiculousness, at least in my opinion, of, of, of the whole recall system in general. It's such a such an, an easy way to to collect a bunch of funding just absolutely news blast and media blast your messaging and prey upon people's intrinsic fears and then give them an outlet to express just the anxieties they have without having to make any kind of actual informed choice between two options and prescriptive policy op- you know outcomes it's just are you feeling good or not don't worry about what the future is going to hold right. just is this good or not? Which is not, it's not how elections are supposed to work. How can we help you point your ire at someone we don't like? And this is something Chesso himself commented on, which is people were not given a choice. They weren't given a choice between, you know, his policy positions and someone else's policy positions or between candidate A and candidate B. It was just, are you happy right now or not? And the answer is obviously fucking no. Presumably vote recall if you're unhappy, even though for one, he's barely even had any fucking time to do anything. It's only been two and a half years. And two, of course no one's happy. We're in the middle of a fucking pandemic and everything sucks. And a, and a homeless crisis and a, and, a, and a cost of living crisis and an inflation crisis and an, an energy right, crisis. Right, a hundred different simultaneous crises. Like, there, there is no way to remove the, the, the fucking geopolitical conflicts going on in the world right now are directly contributing to inflationary costs because energy costs are up and the energy companies... Basically, everything relies on the use of energy to transport shit, to move shit, to, to make stuff. So everything's costs are going up because energy costs are going up. That's not on a fucking DA. Yeah. So let's 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 briefly talk about a few of these articles so people have a taste of what we've been dealing with. <laughs> the, f- the first one is from the Wall Street Journal, which is the most overtly, obviously hostile coverage because it's basically a Fox product. And this one's just titled Chesa Boudin's Lawless City. Which, again, it evokes this idea that he, one, is even in control of what the police do, which he's really not. He runs San Francisco. And two, he would prefer it that way. He, he just loves crying. Um, recalling San Francisco's district attorney would do a lot to restore order. So this insane piece basically tries to say he's like a minion of Hugo Chavez. Um, and, and he's he's a function of his terroristic family. It's it's really short, but it basically at every point is just ad hominem attacks and, and, and nonsense. As I walked to lunch last week in Little Saigon, a few blocks from City Hall, I hurried across Eddie Street to avoid an obvious group of drug dealers. The sidewalks were filthy, filled with homeless tents and god awful smell. Uh, quick, sorry, quick interruption. Uh, if we were to ask this author to uh, do a lineup of what he thinks these drug dealers look like. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, uh, what do you think? How would he describe them? It's the usual suspects. Probably a uh, white men in flannel. Me? Right? No. <laughs> Black people. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's it's always euphemistic for minorities or people or poverty or anyone he just doesn't like. Anyone the sidewalks were filthy. Anyone who's not a 60-something white man who doesn't even live in the city uh, is... is uh, an obvious drug dealer. I almost tripped over a squatting man sticking a hypodermic needle between his toes. <laughs> Two cops leaned against a police car nearby. Meanwhile, pedestrians lawfully waited at a traffic light before crossing. You're Ma'am, this is a lawful order. Why bother? You know, if someone else is drug addicted, why do you follow laws? Just put a gun in my mouth. 
What's the problem? This lawless city. If police aren't like nightstick skull cracking because someone's drug addicted, why do I have to go into the crosswalk? I'd also like to mention, I went to school in Washington, D.C., one of the cleanest, most put together, most image conscious cities in our country. The sidewalks are filthy and covered in gum every fucking square foot. Cities are dirty. We get it. It didn't double dirtiness when Chessa showed up. This he isn't how reality them, works. He taught them the between the toe technique. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, they gave a summit, uh, you know, a, a class on it. This is his indictment of of Boudin. No wonder Chessa Boudin, if polls are correct, will be recalled as San Francisco's district attorney on Tuesday via Proposition H. He's a big source of the city's current rot. Now, here's here's why. I'm reluctant to convict someone based upon his parents' background, but Boudin's provides many clues. I'm right, about to do go. exactly that. But I did uh, just call him a piece of shit rot. Former <laughs> members of the Weather Underground domestic terrorist group, his parents were jailed and convicted for being getaway drivers in the 1981 Brinks truck robbery and murders. He was then raised by the Weather Underground's Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorrance. So once again, this is really just like a subtle dig at Obama, as if Obama is a leftist, who you may remember were friends with Barack Obama. Mr. Boudin says he didn't learn to read until age nine, later graduated from Yale, Oxford, and <laughs> Yale Law School, and even served as interpreter for Hugo Chavez, Venezuela's socialist president, although that was somehow left off of his LinkedIn profile. Uh, uh, he forgot to mention that Chessa was a Rhodes Scholar as well. Yeah. This is someone who learned to read at age nine, was not raised by his real parents because his real parents were in fucking jail for murder, and he ends up going to Yale, Oxford, Yale again, and becoming a Rhodes Scholar. This is one of the most edu best educated, like best understanding lawyers in the fucking world. Yeah, and, and not to litigate something that's not worth getting into, but his parents didn't actually kill anyone. They were just accessories. No, they were spy. they were the getaway drivers. Um, they were not actually murderers themselves, but that's but neither here nor there. It's just, 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 just throw as much shade as you can. Um, but yeah, I don't want to indict people based on their parents, but what if we only indicted them based on their parents? Yeah. Yeah, what if what if we just decided that he has the he has the Joker gene? He's a terrorist yeah. by birth. Well, I mean, the irony is, um, our great uncle uh, Leonard Boudin defended um Fidel Castro in court. Oh, oh no, this family yeah. and their supporting of like left wing socialists in South America, you yeah, know, Paul like the Robinson right people, like, and, yeah. people who actually but, deserve to be defended. But again, that's doing it the right way, right? Like that's doing it the way that is supposedly lawful, which is what chess is also doing, which is you go, you work within the system in through lawful methods to do reform. That is the way leftists are told by liberals that they're supposed to do things. And when they do them, they get enormous hate and flack for it. So of course it kind of reveals the game, right? Which is don't do radical leftist anything. Always moderate, always go halfway always work within the system and then every time you try to do that you get recalled or shit on or or dodged in some way you're never allowed to actually do anything as it turns out according to centrists or, or liberals because they don't actually want you to do anything but as, as we were getting to moments ago yeah if you don't learn to read until age nine and you don't have your parents around and then you proceed to become a road scholar and a and a uh reformer of an incredibly corrupt system yeah i feel like that's a pretty good success I don't, I don't quite follow why that's not a success unless you're a right-wing troll who just doesn't like that you're doing it. Uh, I don't think at any point, by the way, Chessa ever hid, hid that he was an interpreter for Chavez. I, to this day, I'm pretty sure he supports him. Yeah, how, how, so, how, how the fuck do you think this dipshit found out about it? He certainly didn't dive into some deep investigation. Right. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's not that's not a fucking like dark secret. He's like, yeah, he supports his politics. And and let's remind the, f- the folks, I'm not a huge supporter of the Ivy League schools. I don't care. You fucking go to Oxford and Yale twice and become a Rhodes Scholar. Right. I, I, sure, you're part of the elite, I guess, but just de facto. But like, you have to be pretty smart to do all that shit. I guarantee you he is both smarter and more educated than this guy, <laughs> which is what rankles him. It so really he, has to make, he has to make him into a Jewish Soros Obama weatherman conspiracy without having actually done any of those things. Yeah, I'm shocked Soros didn't show up in here somehow. Uh, in November 2019, with help from George Soros, Mr. Boudin elected, was elected district oh, yeah, attorney after running up. No, I'm not joking. Literally the next line. It doesn't say from George Soros. In November 2019, with help from George Soros. Mine doesn't say that. Okay, well, you're missing a paragraph. Mine just says, in November 2019, Mr. Boudin was elected district attorney after running on a platform of decarceration. No, no it says I, without from George Soros. Um, oh, it's not a yes-no. My I pulled up the link five, you know, t- 20 minutes ago. Yeah. You, yours might be open for a week. They, they probably had to edit that out because that's fucking slander. Well, I mean, I opened mine yesterday, but maybe they changed it since. Um, I, I'm, all I'm saying is, on my browser, it doesn't say that. Maybe so you have, you have like a plug-in that's like filtering... Right wing. No, I just have talking. ad blocks. Right, that is yeah. shocking. How could I? Yeah, no, such it's a thing? it is just a straight up anti-Semitic dog whistle for white supremacists. Like saying George Soros has very specific meanings for um, anti-Semites and and neo-Nazis and and white supremacists and Holocaust deniers and all that shit, but which how, is just like the the Jews control communism and they're the real reasons the world's bad. That, that's the how, idea. How is that sentence not in mine? What's I don't happening? Know. It's not mine either. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. In November 2019, with help from George Soros, Mr. Boudin was elected district attorney after running on a platform of decarceration and ending cash bail. Asian Americans were big supporters. Maybe Alex has the Soros plug-in. It, like, injects Soros (laughs) in relevant places. (laughs) Um, It it is baffling to me that the Wall Street Journal would even try to edit out their white supremacist dog whistles. Like the Drumpf and the Kofefi plugins and shit that people have. Eh, that's stupid. Um, yeah, go not out with anymore, Asians. though. Those Asians. Not anymore. <laughs> go ahead. Just yeah, just like it's it's checking all the boxes. It's you know using identity politics, like co-opting the will of a of a group of people without at all kind of having any kind of conference or dialogue with them to get their their opinion from like advocacy groups. It's just like nope. Um, uh, minorities don't like him, so he's not progressive after all. He is. <laughs> He is evil. He hates Asians. Um, we here at the Asian delegation reject. Uh, we 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 want to trade Boudin away. <laughs> yeah, we we here at the middle aged white reactionary um, Asian station uh, would like to speak for all at, Asians at the Yellow Faith Convention. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck is he talking about? Did he did he interview every Asian in San Francisco? He's just randomly throwing out a talking point and say, like, "Yeah, whatever." No, I don't, it's know, I don't one, have to prove that. It's that one woman who also happens to be in the Associates of Realtors. Right. It's like, well, there's a lot of Asian people in San Francisco because it's in California. They're going to be a b- pretty big demographic in San Francisco elections. Are they for or against him? Eh, fuck it. I'll just say they're against him. You know what else uh, this guy really should have said? He really should have said, and if you'll remember, under FDR, a progressive Asian Americans were thrown in concentration camps. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's <sighs> in a strongly progressive move. Yes, and yeah. hand, hand, handpicked FDR strongman descendant Chesa Boudin follows on his legacy of anti-Asian hate. 
But yeah, uh, I mean, this this article is absolute dog shit. It's really short, and I still don't want to read the rest of it. Oh no, there's there's suddenly choice choice moments we have to get back to. But yeah, I mean, why why don't why doesn't someone else pick a few quotes out of the remaining pile of shit to, to mention to the audience? I, the, oh, I, I I got a really good paragraph I want to yeah, talk go, about. Go for it. This is the author, by the way. This has gotten personal for me. My family and I live 30 miles from San Francisco. (laughs) A homeless man walked into our house on a Tuesday morning, high as a kite while sopping wet, uh, with sopping wet pants and smelling like a marinated skunk. Even our dog didn't bark. Our dog voted for Chesa Boudin. The dog is euthanized tomorrow. Yeah. Even the dog is susceptible to woke politics. The dog knows that it's not fair for him to be in the carceral system. He's just like shitting his pants. What's the big deal? And breaking uh, into people's homes who don't live in San Francisco. Chester uh, Boudin told this guy to break into his house 30 miles away. Uh, the police. Um, uh, I told him to get out of my house. My wife called 911. Eventually he left. <laughs> the police wouldn't arrest him until a hazmat unit arrived to clean him up. And of course he ended up getting released. Yeah, because all he did was accidentally break into your house. Even though, what, how do you break into your house? He didn't like break it with a fucking uh, like lockpick. Did you leave your fucking doors unlocked? Uh, where else? Some guy who was presumably high or mentally ill wandered into a house, and he wants him thrown in jail. Like I don't, I don't know what you want to when say we to asked, that. <laughs> when we asked neighbors who saw him walking around that morning why they didn't say something, the typical response was, "Oh, I couldn't do that." Oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to snitch. Oh, I'm a good progressive lefty. Yeah, you fucking live in the suburbs outside of San Francisco, which means your property values are probably more than the average inside the city. Fuck off with this bullshit. And all your neighbors personally know what a piece of shit you are, so they try to stay away from your Right, they're like, yeah. um, they're like uh, Rand Paul's neighbors, like, get good, get fucked. Yeah, I'm on team neighbor and dog. (laughs) Fuck this dude. I'm on team sopping wet pants. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really sick. You, you get the sense that this guy's problem with it is not the fact that the guy's almost certainly mentally ill or that he's almost certainly severely high due to drug addiction. It's like, no, why is he not in jail? Why is he not being brutalized by the state? That is the only solution to this in this guy's mind. And it's just, it's a very telling personal anecdote of what he actually wants done. This author Just is more fascists. Totally. This author is giving John Cass a run for his money. Yeah, it's, it's definitely John Cass energy. And Which is to say lethargy. I, I like that he, he kind of finishes off everything by taking the last box, by going the route of, of like the um, American like foreign policy think bank, uh, think tank, think spank bank tank um, <laughs> group in, in America, the kind of jingoism that we've talked about a million times, anti kind of leftist, um, anti-global south kind of uh messaging which is identifying someone as incredibly incompetent but also incredibly dangerous um and yet we also need a strong backbone to take our streets back we need someone who's strong but strong in a different way because this guy's weak but he's also strong enough to empower crime to subsume our city um which is another thing i can't remember how often it comes up in the rest of these articles um because there's been so much coverage about about this, but the conservative and even centrist messaging um, of progressives as being pro-crime or even pro-criminal yeah. is so, it's just like so wild and so 
completely devoid. It's never, I've never seen it substantiated, of course, but it's such a, like, because it, it paints this, this idea of, of just like, they want crime. Why do they want crime? I mean, the only thread I can draw is is the Soros thing again. That it's do we great. want crime? Yes. When do we want it now? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're all as you say they're all Batman villains. They're all they're all just insane and they love crime, uh, uh, and they and they they're posturing as if they they have other alternative. Uh, by you know, the way, Aiden, I think your email can get a new uh, a new weekly roundup, and you can follow Andy Kessler, the author of this. I just want to um briefly for people's context, uh, give them a smorgasbord of this guy's writing experience and, and work history. Mm-hmm. Andy Kessler is the author of Inside View, a column he writes for the Wall Street Journal on technology and markets. This is a technology and markets writer. You know what he's really well-versed for? Talking about electoral politics and crime uh, and where they intersect with culture. He won the 2019 Gerald Loeb Award for Commentary. Probably some ghoul. He is the author of several books, including Wall Street, Meat, and Eat People. He used to design chips at Bell Labs before working on Wall Street for Payne, Weber, and Morgan Stanley, and then as a founder of the hedge fund Velocity Capital. Like, these are joke names. A real man of the people. Here are some yeah. of his latest articles. With no conflicts of interest. Here, here are some of his latest articles. Bees are fish and other fake narratives. Who pays for, the crypto, uh, for crypto's collapse? Then the Chessa article. A to-do list for the class of 2022. When will the selling stop? Please, someone think of the crypto. The Biden loyalty machine. (laughs) Debt pick can be a killer. Why does Hollywood hate Silicon Valley? Then to my two favorites, I think we might have accidentally stumbled onto another baseball crank. Here's his last two recent ones. Oprah, Pavlov, and Gavin Newsom. And then (laughs) the coup de grace. Major League Baseball's respect problem. All right, Evan, didn't we read that one? I've re- I've heard enough. <laughs> this guy, this is uh, like a new baseball crank. He's the West Coast ba- baseball crank. There's a lot of baseball cranks out there. Holy shit! <laughs> but yeah, I mean this this was the most like openly idiotic. This this is an incredibly dumb person writing an incredibly dumb article. So the uh, the fact that it's filled with like dog whistles and stuff shouldn't be surprising. The fact that it's filled with open uh anti-semitic calls and open uh ad hominem attacks and just total falsehoods yeah i mean that's it's wall street journal um i i was not as offended by this as some of the other ones but i do think it's hilariously poorly done uh and a pretty good example of what you can expect from them which is just like fox with glasses on uh so yeah this was this was awful real real dog shit (laughs) but then we decided to go to the place where you really get conservative news which is the new york times um because they're the ones who actually like give a shit to do it right so they have they have a couple articles one is uh progressive backlash in california fuels democratic debate over crime as if there was any real debate on this subject and not just a recall which was foisted upon them as we've mentioned there was no actual effort to provide alternatives to this problem that they've invented Election results in San Francisco and Los Angeles were the latest signs of a restless Democratic electorate that remains deeply unsatisfied and concerned about public safety. So right away, they're, they're playing into the same dog whistles that we've been talking about for months, which is um, the crime is up. Crime super up everywhere. Crime is up. Is it true? No. Um, 
we now need to have a rebellion against left-wing forces that supposedly defunded our police and abolished our police so that we can come back to sanity, even though, A, crime is not up meaningfully. In fact, it's down in several major ways. B, left-wing forces never took over. We've never actually had the abolishing or defunding that they're talking about. And C, that there is no debate. They're not even presenting this to the public in a way that's other than just, here's what to think. Right, because because the democratic public is just being told you should be scared now, be scared now, Un, undo any progress that was made because you're supposed to be scared now. So watch these ads at peak old peer person watching TV time. Right, that I spent millions of dollars on saying you should be scared in your house. Yeah, and again, even the framing presents it as though this is a foregone conclusion. The very beginning of the article: progressive Democrats were knocked on the defensive in their own party over crime and homelessness on Wednesday after voters in two high-profile California races delivered a stark warning about the potency of law and order as a political message in 2022. What they're not potency. mentioning is that they would love that. They love that. They want this to win. They do not want progressive DAs. They do not want refunding. They, they do not de want defunding or abolishing the police. They do not want bail reform. They do not want any of the things that are even the softest edge of curbing the brutality of our police state and our carceral system. And what they, they don't acknowledge that, even though that's obviously what they want, but they do try to imply that all across the country, there's this like mass fascist rising against any kind of reform without acknowledging that it's only rising to the extent that it is because the media is intentionally trying to get a rise out of people in this way. So it's like we it's like lighting a house on fire and being like smoke seems to be gathering. It's it's I don't know, it, it's really transparent but at the same time I feel like it's not obvious to everyone that that's what's going on here. Um they they talk about they 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 compare uh Chess's election to another uh sort of recall there was another uh California recall uh, election at the same time. Well, they tried to recall the Gavin Newsom, Newsom. One? but that was a while ago. Yeah, I, I don't know what the other one is. Yeah, it was somewhere deep in the, this is a much longer article. Um, but they mention in the midst of their rambling about crime and 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 the failure somehow of the DA to lose to fight the war on crime or the war on the homeless or something. They they mention like, oh, by the way, this was actually. Um, a movement largely funded by a right-wing billionaire to oppose that. Like, they, even though they don't necessarily support that component of it, uh, Republican politicians and Mr. Caruso, this right-wing billionaire, outspent uh, Miss Bass 10 to 1, uh, which is a reference to basically his influence in the election. Um, this guy's running for mayor, by the way, if we didn't mention. It's just... It, the, even, even the people who basically do support this outcome, and even though they're sort of pretending they don't, um, they do have to acknowledge, like, yeah, this is a right-wing insurgency. Like, this is an effort by extremely wealthy elites to buy an election. To, it's, they're basically just trying to do the, like, the Bloomberg thing, which is we're going to throw enough money at this in forms of political advertisements and misleading bullshit to get an outcome we want, and we don't care what it has to do with democracy. I don't give a shit whether this is like the will of the people. We just want to confuse people enough to get them to vote for a thing. They just want to do like a Brexit. They want to, they want to do like the Prop 8 shit. They, they're, they're trying to take advantage of loopholes in democratic systems to force through horrible policy. Do people even remember that Bloomberg got in last minute in the 2020 election? <laughs> wow. And totally made a fool of himself? That shit was fun.
and there's also once again this you know yeah this this article is framing this one recall of this one da in this one place as indicative as emblematic of, of all of california's will and condition you know without without noting or examining the fact that progressive da's are slated for for elections are polling above their you know, like, like very progressive da's with in some places representing places with twice the population of san francisco like alameda county right and uh contra costa um or even like the i think the uh la attorney general right now is is fairly progressive and is polling extremely well like the it's always it's always just seizing on even when they're not ostensibly liberal and thus you know tied into the the realm of social progressive progressivism and in the public eye it's always just even even when you're the new york times this is what the public wants and and we want to be sober about it we're not going to gleefully or or, or overtly toxically attack with vitriol like the, the wall street journal piece we just read but we're going to just kind of manufacture consent that this is what people want it's not the will of this churning machine of vast money and uh business interest it's it's just the people and and also the fact that even though Chesa was was recalled um that polling for uh the outcomes that he was trying to achieve for the approaches still pull well the policies still pull well because they're abstract because they're in theory but then when anyone actually gets in charge to do those things and the police stop working and everyone turns against them and all the money and interest come in obviously you can't follow through with it's 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 a total hollow understanding of how politics works so people like the policy but not the people who are going to put in the policy and it's it's indicative of, of this you know this reality that the, the reason that conservative one of the, the many reasons conservatives are often so successful in seeing their ends uh become tangible outcomes is because even the ostensibly liberal media um and public because of that they swiftly accept the outcomes and then the goalposts shift immediately whereas for progressive goals and efforts they're always expected to yield dramatic results right away while being assailed by this press machine and well-funded opposition and, and and these things that are meant to be remedial and kinder take time that's the idea it's it takes time to try to make people's lives better try to change behavior change conditions and it's just faster to throw people in jail or kill them and they also, they blame the left for things that are status quo, things that have been true for hundreds of years. If Martin Luther King's like campaigning to get civil rights through and, and they're like, okay, sure, but black people are currently impoverished. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, because that's what he's fighting against, right? Like when, when you're a campaigning, you know, progressive DA and you're trying to fight homelessness and drug addiction by providing humane alternatives to the carceral state and someone's like, sure, but look at the homelessness and drug addiction. It's like, yeah, that's why he got elected. He was elected to deal with that because the system has not been dealing with that the entire time. The homelessness and drug addiction situation has been the case for decades in San Francisco. That's why he was elected. They're literally just pointing at the problem and going, see, there is a problem. You didn't solve these systemic problems during a pandemic. Fuck you, bitch. Get out of here. It's just, it's it's ludicrous. They, they haven't solved these problems in hundreds of years of conservative policymaking where they have been 
absolutely unopposed with almost no meaningful left-wing pushback this entire time. And no one ever seems to point out that the system has failed so dramatically across the board in every major American city to resolve things like homelessness and drug addiction. No, it's always the one city where they want to cherry-pick someone they don't like, and then they point to the same thing that's true fucking everywhere. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. That works. That's um, the beauty, baby. It doesn't have to make sense. But in case that wasn't bad enough, I mean, the, the, the New York Times, again, they, they like to posture as though they're not Republicans because they want to be like buying Democrats or something. Well, let's talk about that. So they frame this entire article as, you know, careful Democrats, you don't want to get too radical or else you'll alienate the America and then, you know, we'd get Trump again. Like, it's really just a cautionary tale. Like, we're on your side. And by your side, I mean we're, we're conservative. And by, yeah, um, your side, I mean our side to make money. Right. So really, like, stop doing anything because we need to win in 2024. Uh, at the White House, Mr. Biden has made a point of outright rejecting the most severe rhetoric embraced by the activist left. Again, these are terms that could be coming right out of, like, Breitbart. All the way they describe the left wing is obviously hostile. The answer is not to defund the police, Mr. Biden said in February when he visited New York City, where Mayor Eric Adams, who won in 2021 primarily on a crime-fighting message, has been held up as an example of how to approach the issue. Fascism. Who's, who's just bulldozing the homeless. Anyway, uh, Republicans say that the issue presents a deep vulnerability for Democrats on par with inflation and the economy. Oh, it's almost like this is a Republican talking point that you're helping them win with. There are voters in the suburbs and exurbs all across the country, and they're seeing what's happening in cities. Again, dog whistle for black people, said Dan Constant, who heads the leading super PAC for House Republicans, which has already reserved $125 million in television ads this fall. They're both aghast and concerned for their communities. Well, first of all, all the people who vote Republican left the cities anyway, except for the real estate managers um, and like the auto dealers. The, the vast majority of white flight was by conservative whites who were fleeing the city because of the association with minorities. So no, they actually don't give a shit what happens in the cities. They only care about what happens in the suburbs and, and countryside. And two, why are we listening to the Republicans about what the Democrats are supposed to be doing? It's, it's not relevant. In fact, if anything, this should be a perfect evidence that this entire thing is just playing into Republican hands. Anyway, for months, the party's tensions between the progressive left and law enforcement have been particularly acute in San Francisco. Also uh, known as cops not doing their job because they're pouting cunts. But they're also just admitting that this is between one side, which is an actually politically viable solution to a problem, and just police. It wasn't a clash between the progressive left and, like, moderate left, or, like, pro progressives and versus leftists, or even liberals. They're just like, yeah, this was a fight between a political movement and a fascist police state. Because that's who funded and supported the, the, the recall election as much as anyone, except maybe the billionaire. This was a conflict between literally the gang-like institution of the police versus a political project to find an alternative to their violence. And it's interesting to me that the New York Times actually picked up on that, even though they didn't frame it exactly that way. Then they say, the city's mayor, London Breed, sparred with Mr. Boudin, announced plans last month to boycott pride parades after the organizers had banned law enforcement uniforms. And what's funny is, they're trying to unseat him with this new fucking realtor billionaire. So London Breed... Or is that mayor versus governor? I, I don't London, know. Well, first of all, London Breed's a... Well, versus versus LA. Um, oh, Lon London Breed is the same person who was elected on a progressive platform that immediately became a Kristen Cinema reactionary. Um, so she's treacherous as fuck and shouldn't be trusted at all. Secondly, London Breed is a woman? Yeah. Secondly, this is the same person who was doing like COVID parties 
immediately after telling other people that they needed to tighten their waist belts and 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 take precautions. So London Mead's a p- piece of shit. Like let, let's just be real. And the, instead of acknowledging like her incredibly tarnished history in the recent years, it's just like she's the reasonable moderate who would only go to a pride parade if police could show up. Well, you know why police aren't usually invited to pride parades? Because they abuse and murder LGBT people. And they have a very long history of doing so, and it's well documented. There's a reason why you wouldn't have police at a pride parade. It's the same reason you don't have neo-Nazis at, like, a Jewish temple. I don't know. It's just not that complicated. Have you heard of the Stonewall riots, perhaps? (laughs) Right. Like, it's not even about your ideological stance on defund or abolish the police. LGBT people often do not feel safe when there's police around because they're brutalized by them. It's just, it's just insane. This is, and then, so by the way, there's nothing to do with chess anyway. At no point did it even mention whether Boudin had anything to do with her attending or not attending. It's no, this is just buttressing. They're, they're trying. Well, they're, they're trying to say this buttresses their argument that yeah. like the Democratic Party is in limbo right now and reckoning with their, with their incongruous views on crime. And yeah. it's like spreading all across like a virus, like a computer virus. And it just, it just goes on and on with this stuff about like comparing and contrasting the good, reasonable Democrats in their mind, who are all absolute pieces of shit with no real solutions to these problems, to like the radical, dangerous leftists who want to do somewhat less cruelty. And, with, and again, at no point do they say like, here are the policy positions that are presented by any of these supposed centrists or supposed reasonable people and how they would solve the problem. That's not their mandate. Their mandate is simply to compare someone who they say is better to someone who they say is worse without any explanation of what that would entail or how. And they end with the sagely line, we need not fall victim to a false choice between public safety and criminal justice. Mr. Maloney said, we better do both. Okay, how? How would you like to do that? We're not told. But the implication is get rid of chess. <laughs> Just choose to win. Burden of, of evidence is on, it's on the recall. Right. And if it's not clear, which it, which it should be, uh, Chester Boudin's not a radical leftist. No. Does it go nearly far enough? Neither did Bernie. Neither did fucking uh, the uh, guy in UK who got removed. Right. Corbyn. Like, none of these people go far enough. He, he's someone who, who very much wants to, wants to, it seems, reform the system and make it more effective and kinder towards the outcomes that it's advertised or supposed to have. And it's just, it's like, it's the 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 idea of leftism is so the kind of definition of it is so left to pundits at establishment media at this point to conservatives to define it's it's ridiculous i mean at least the first guy tried to like tie him to to chavez this is now just yeah. <laughs> the more the more typical new york you know take that you'll see which is just just saying that he is you know he's a radical activist leftist which is a bad thing of course uh and it's making uh the entire party unpopular yeah, it, we, we may tolerate you radical lefties because you vote for our candidates when we force you to in national elections, but, like, don't make any noise. We don't want you, like, upsetting the House guests. It's, just, it's, it's really patronizing and pathetic that they come to the left every single electoral cycle. Like, please, please make sure you save the country by voting for the most dog shit candidates we could possibly give you. But then the rest of the year, they're, they're like, um, fuck, and, fuck you and die. And by House guests, you mean the flow of money. Yes, the house guests are all the, their investors and, and corruptors from fucking Wall Street and real estate speculators. Like it's just, it's just, it's just insane to me the, the double standard of like we want everything that you can give us when you're useful and never talk again out the rest of the time. 
the, 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 the center treats like leftists, like a, like a fucking battered housewife. It's like be seen, but not heard. That, that is the attitude. And it's really disgusting. Yeah. It wants them all to be cursed cinemas, to have some idealism that's appealing to voters, young voters and leftists when election season is, is in effect, but they're expected once they get into the system to fall into the, the corruption cycle and, and, toss all their ideals and aspirations to the wayside besides that, which puts money in their pockets and thus the rest of corporate Democrats pockets. But what's interesting to briefly try something you mentioned uh, a minute ago, Jace, like they also do invoke left-wing credentials for someone who is no longer left-wing. Uh, they, they will, they will use that as a segue to be like, I was once a leftist too, but now I'm a right-wing no popular. And now I'm a white right-wing crank. That's the trajectory you're supposed to take. Uh, and this is the tone of our third article, uh, the second of the New- two New York Times ones. In, in San Francisco, Democrats are at war with themselves over crime. Fueled by concerns about burglaries and hate crimes, San Francisco's liberal district attorney, Jessica Boudin, faces a divisive recall in a famously progressive city. So famously. Even, yeah, even before we unpack the fact that San Francisco, despite nominal political leanings to being democratic, is one of the most gentrified and reactionary right. cities on it, earth. Yeah, it is the fam- most famously NIMBY gentrified, uh, not progressive cities. <laughs> let's let's look at the left wing credentials. Gay of and the progressive people. are not synonyms. Oh well, yeah, exactly. Let's look at those supposedly left wing credentials of the recall leaders. All right. As the former chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party, Mary Young has a long list of liberal bona fides, including her early days in political volunteering in Ohio for the presidential campaign of George McGovern and her service on the board of local Planned Parenthood branch. In Cleveland, I was considered a communist, she said in her San Francisco <laughs> office. Now, in right-wing media, Joe Biden's considered a communist. It doesn't mean you're left-wing. Planned Parenthood is supported by many Republicans because they want their children to be able to get like basic sexual health care. <laughs> like it's like basically saying I I was supporting McGovern fifty years ago and I want basic reproductive health. And I worked at a hospital once. And I worked at a hospital. I am now considered a communist. Um, but squalor and petty crime that she sees crescendoing, crescendoing <laughs> on some city streets. Her office has been broken into four times during the coronavirus pandemic, has tested her liberal outlook. Last year on the same day her granddaughter was born, she watched a video of a mentally ill man punching an older Chinese woman in broad daylight on Market Street, which is definitely why we need more prisons. Ms. Young, a director of... Government Affairs at the San Francisco Association of Realtors and head of a Realtors Foundation that assists homeless people wondered what kind of city her granddaughter would grow up in. I thought, am I going to be able to take her out in the stroller? So, yes, you, you, you can. You, you will be able to. Yes. The answer is yes. But I saw a TikTok of an Asian guy getting punched or an Asian woman. If we don't implement, person. if we don't implement violent, brutal police state measures, and intensify the carceral system, you won't be able to take your babies out in strollers. That's a rational thing to say as a communist. Uh, and also, she's a communist and a realtor. It's just, it's just uh, yeah, that makes even, sense. And not even fucking trying. Now she's no dog. This, I heard you don't think p- p- property and land are real, so you became a realtor. Yeah, I I, may, I make my life entirely through parasitic rent seeking. Will I even be able to be a communist anymore? I just I'm, I, I don't I'm know. infiltrating from the inside. 
Now she finds herself leading what has been called a democratic civil war in one of America's most liberal cities. Again, this is such a puff piece for this hammering that nonsense. An effort to recall San Francisco's DHS of a dean that echoes of the party's larger split over how to handle matters of crime and punishment. In an overwhelmingly democratic city, liberals and independents will decide a recall that is receiving major funding from conservative donors in addition to backing from moderate Democrats. What shade of blue are you? That's really what it comes down to, said Lily Rapson, the campaign manager of the recall and Ms. Young's partner in the endeavor. A lifelong Democrat, Ms. Rapson said she was motivated to lead the campaign after her home was broken into last year as she slept. So these are people who are revealing that one frightening personal experience with crime, or not even frightening, just like my office was burglarized when I was away. Um. Now it's personal. Now I have to be Republican. Like, that's basically what they're saying. As soon as it becomes in any way frightening to them that, like, crime is a real thing, it's time to endorse right-wing solutions that have never even been proven effective against crime because it was always, like, NIMBY bullshit. It was just, it was fine to reform crime as long as I wasn't affected in any way. So, so like, let's even take them at their their premise. Let's say, like, crime would go up 5% if it meant humane treatment of the homeless and humane treatment of... Uh, African-Americans and humane treatment of drug-addicted people. Well, I think that'd be worth it, right? Like, like if, you, if, like, three more offices were broken into each year, but you were getting, like, basic human rights for hundreds of thousands of people that were not getting it before, I think that would be worth it. But, they're, like, they're not even arguing that, right? Like, they're not even trying to say, say like, this is a cost-benefit analysis. It's all just, like, personal anecdote. Like, I felt unsafe. I didn't think I could bring my stroller out. It's... And then they even admit there's no compelling evidence that Mr. Boudin's policies have made crime significantly worse in San Francisco. Overall, crime has changed little since it took office in early 2020. That's actually false. It's gone significantly down. Uh, the even vast so, majority, it doesn't matter. The vast majority of types of crime have gone down. There's some have gone up, but more have gone down than up and by larger margins, uh, which some of the articles even do acknowledge. But it's on the telly margins. more. Yeah. Avoidatory, because the crime was up on the telly. Yeah, so it's... I know I'm a Democrat, but I, I saw a TikToker Asian hate and I decided to get rid of the DA. These are logically coherent following arguments. And then once again, they hit the thing about what his parents were. They hit the thing about, you know, what his personal politics or his personal life is somehow the reason not to do this. Again, attacking an individual as though, A, that was even relevant, because it's not like there's an alternative running against him with their own character to compare to. And B, the politics have nothing to do with the individual. The individual is just a bearer of that identity. But let's, let's talk about something else. They mention... In this piece, basically, that the biggest resistance to uh, progressive prosecutors is like other Democrats, like Democrats who don't want to be tarnished by association. And they're basically right. Like this is this is something publicly um, is very much resisted by the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, also known as the entire party. But I briefly want to read to you the list of groups that were endorsements for or against the recall. Right. Because I want to see like, well, who actually supported the recall and who didn't the yes for recall meaning the 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 Get pro, rid of the pro police state side uh a couple of politi- uh, board of supervisors members uh a former state senator a bunch of clubs like a bunch of democratic clubs as well as the uh you know associated organizations of that the san francisco republican party the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, the San Francisco Taxpayer Association, the National Review, and, and a couple of unions. Now here's Ooh, the people. Which unions? The UA Local 38 and the Local 261. 
Does it say what industries those are in? And probably it's probably like one of us probably a police. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't offhand know which ones they are. Yeah, let's hear who who didn't want to recall them. But let's talk about no on recall. All right. Three times as many of his super board of supervisors members, two versus six. Uh, another six former supervisors, as opposed to zero against. Uh, two California State Assembly members, Danny Glover, what? Jesse Jackson, and John Legend all explicitly came out on his back. All the black celebrities? Yeah. Cool. Uh, the California Nurses Union, the Service Employees International Union, the San Francisco Democratic Party, the San Francisco Libertarian Party. What? Oh, because they don't like crime. Yeah, that's fair. The American Civil Liberties Union, the San Francisco uh, Bernie Society organizations like Our Revolution, Bernie Kratz, etc. The San Francisco's Tenants Union, and six or seven different local media institutions, all of the different papers. The amount of things supporting him was actually vastly greater than those opposing him. Uh, as far as like relevance to left wing politics or even center left politics, almost every actual democratic institution supported him. Ironically, doesn't matter. So unlike the Not framing enough. in the national news, this was one of the instances in which the Democratic Party actually did line up behind their boy. It, it, but they still have to pretend like they didn't, which I find incredible. It's it's they actually want to make us angrier than we even should be. In this case, the center Democrats and the left Democrats actually stood together and tried to resist a far-right hijacking and failed. And the far-right was able to get away with doing this in the name of Democrats because someone was once thought of a communist before they became a realtor. I just, I don't... It's fraud. This was, not, this was a Republican effort. It's completely absurd to pretend it wasn't. The Democratic Party explicitly endorsed Jesso. The Republican Party explicitly opposed him. And based on the list of organizations... But it's the Democratic it's, rift. It's just insane to call this like a democratic civil war. No, this was a democratic versus republican conflict. I, I have an idea. I'd like to hear what you guys' thoughts are. I think you should only be allowed to vote in a recall election if you previously voted for that candidate or, or like against that particular candidate. If you voted a, a, either way before. Yeah. Because a recall is basically a referendum on a, a previously existing vote. It's not like an opportunity for new input because your moods have changed. Like you have to have skin in the game in my opinion, but I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I just I, think recall elections are bad ideas. Yeah, I, yeah I'm just saying if we're gonna have them, what would be a way to make them fairer? I don't agree, but I do think it's an interesting suggestion considering that he, he got more votes than he got for his successful election in the recall and still lost. Mm. Um but I also get where you're coming from because a lot of these people were basically guided to the finish line without any, as you say, skin in the game to begin with. So yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous that every one of these articles has presented this as either law and order versus chaos, as if it's like Warhammer, you know, empire versus the, the dark, you know, forces of the dark gods, as, as, as if there's this pro-crime faction that somehow has to be recalled, or Democrat civil war without acknowledging that this was an effort almost entirely funded by Republicans for Republican interests in line with national Republican talking points and against any sort of Democratic real interest in the long run. So for ones, I'm going to fucking say the Democrats were right and they got betrayed by the depiction in, in national media because they overwhelmingly backed their dude. Well, hear any disagreement here? 
So fuck you, national media, for not even giving the centrist credit for once for actually being on the right side of things. This was absolutely a far right hit job. Um, now that's not to say that everyone voting was Republican because San Francisco is like ninety percent registered Democrat compared to not registered Republican. But that's not really the question. The question is who financed and was the propaganda pieces for the different sides in this election. And if you're looking at that as opposed to simply the voters, because the voters are who they are, they don't know what your plans are as people manipulating them. Um, the voters were always going to be majority Democrat, but the people who are funding this election recall were very obviously wealthy Republicans on one side and a handful and of realtors. Yeah, yeah, and realtors. That's it. it was, this was all about basically cleaning up the streets through jailing and evicting and killing the homeless and drug users so that they could make more money on fucking real estate. It's like, it's not even subtle. They do this in every fucking city, but San Francisco's already very much this way. To pretend as though that's not an even bigger crime than the fucking crimes they're talking about is insane. But speaking of presenting things as if they are Democrats or leftists when they are very much not. I thought you were going to say, speaking of insane. That as well. We have one last article, which really takes the cake for being both completely galaxy-brained completely disingenuous posturing as left-wing when it isn't posturing is giving a shit about san francisco when it does not this one's nuts uh and this is an article by nelly bowles what excuse me pardon me come again <laughs> that's the name of the writer nelly bowles yeah that's How? like a new serial people can't choose the name believe me there are much better reasons to be irritated with this person than her name i know it's just funny how San Francisco became a failed city and, and how it could recover. Now, I bet you're wondering how we got to this. It's like record scratch. There will not be a covering in this article of how real estate interests have destroyed San Francisco. There will not be a covering in this article of how gentrification has destroyed San Francisco. There will not be a covering of how people like this woman's ancestor who like owned half of California destroyed San Francisco. No, 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 there, no. You, you're mistaken. Her ancestor was a, a humble butcher, never became anything else. Yeah. In the Tenderloin District. Yeah, he definitely doesn't still own like all of the water in California. Um, <laughs> that is not the problem. They're not going to talk about how like the gold rush following uh, basically uh, anti-Hispanic, anti-Asian, and anti-Indigenous peoples white colonialism destroyed san francisco i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of ways you could talk about san francisco being destroyed no what destroyed san francisco was liberal prosecutors i just i now so this person postures as if they're like liberal or even left of center because they are jewish because or well i mean they became jewish they didn't start jewish anyway uh because they're lesbian because they're uh they have some liberal views on some social issues, kind of, though everything they say in this piece suggests the alternative. Because they like San Francisco, and San Francisco is mostly Democrats, so by proxy, they're a Democrat? There's a lot of absolutely baffling lines of inference in this piece that make it seem as though they are someone who is speaking from the heart, and though they're someone who's speaking from a position of progressive or left-wing values. That really could not be further from the case um, when you look at who this person is. So for frame of reference, the person writing this piece is married to Barry Weiss and converted to whatever, you know. Isn't that the chick who, uh, who wrote for New York Times about Israel and is a psychopath? Yes. It In is my that, opinion? It is that extremely right-wing 
person who fired herself from the New York Times yeah, because couldn't she couldn't get canceled, so she did, so she could get the griff going. Yeah, it, and opens like radical Zionist, a, a supporter of many different war and military operations by the United States, in in no way a left wing figure. If anything, pretty explicitly the opposite, and whose political uh, influence on her spouse could not be more obvious when you look at their politics. Um, but beyond that, power couple. This is someone who is infamous for repeatedly trolling leftist and liberal circles by po posing as one of them and then endorsing far-right bullshit. She uh, basically interviewed Jordan Peterson and tried to make it seem like he was more reasonable than he was. I think she, I heard he had another psychotic break recently. Yeah, he did. Another um, one. She's written about the, the you know, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, once again, from a ridiculous Zionist perspective. She, she writes for the National Review. It's just like, it's not, it's not a left-wing person. This is not a left-wing person in any way, shape, or form. But because it's like culturally coded as such because of LGBTQ identity or because of like Jewish identity, which again, is just a conversion. It's not like she was born into that culture or anything. Um, yeah, this is just like, trust me, I'm also one of you fellow, hum fellow students. It's, 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 it's really gross. And, and there's no, at no point in the article is, is there any acknowledgement made about what this person's actual identity is why are they posing in this way? Why is this written in this way? Like, I, I had to read this article twice just to even understand what I was reading because it constantly, constantly is posturing as like fellow leftists, you know, we have a reckoning. We have Comrades, to together. brothers and sisters. <laughs> it's absolutely torturous, the sort of pretzels that it, it ties itself in, trying to make it seem as though this is a leftist coming to grips with reality as opposed to a right wing person who is simply trolling you. So let's briefly look at some of these points that are being made. The article talks basically about how wonderful San Francisco has always been, a million personal anecdotes about being in San Francisco or enjoying the scene of San Francisco and all these things. But then the DA came in. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I just want to... What am I going to do? I want to remind people, um, no matter how prestigious, quote unquote, uh, the outlet is, uh, no matter how articulate or eloquent the writer is the author is people can and do lie in op-eds and in articles. <laughs> i just wanted, i didn't know they could do that as before we get into like real real meat as uh of the, the piece i just i want to read read this little anecdote uh, a couple of years ago one of my friends saw a man staggering down the street bleeding she recognized him as someone who regularly slept outside in the neighborhood and called 911 Paramedics and police arrived and began treating him, but members of a homeless advocacy group noticed and intervened. They told the man that he didn't have to get into the ambulance, that he had the right to refuse treatment. So that's what he did. The paramedics left. The activists left. The man sat on the sidewalk alone, still bleeding. A few months later, he died about a block away. <laughs> Which I, I knew because I, I, I tended to him. I got his phone number. I know because I killed him. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah. So maybe this happened. It seems entirely ridiculous to me and hyperbolic, if not entirely falsified. <laughs> it could be total fiction. It seems extremely unlikely that that is word for word true. But like, this is, this is just, I, I think it also goes exactly to like, I think it kind of, it's almost like a self-report to me because <laughs> as you say, Alex, she tries to 
position herself pose as like a leftist involved heavily in San Francisco. And yet this entirely inserts herself into a rather dramatic situation in which she is just kind of like a apathetic observer jotting down notes about what's going wrong and not at all considering anything besides what fits into the narrative that she's trying to, to weave. Like, like it's, there's nothing about what the conversation among the activists and, and the homeless person were, you know, no, no kind of supposition about, but they advised him not to get into the ambulance because then he'd be charged $500 in debt and then would be forced to, to go into like insolvency, which he would later be jailed for. Or I don't know. It's just it's just very or arrested afterwards. No, that wouldn't happen they, for suspicion of drugs or whatever else. Not in San Francisco. They don't arrest homeless people. Alex, aren't you paying attention? And, and also, she had to be close enough to hear all this conversation. So she's within like fifty feet. Why didn't she just give him a fucking bandaid? Like she could have attended to him as a private citizen if she was really that concerned about his bleeding. If you're repeatedly pointing out that someone's in danger of dying from blood loss, and you're like, sucks. Damn, why isn't why is anyone helping, helping him in this city that's gone to shit? I can't believe these these leftist radicals prevented him from getting medical care. Guess he'll die. Well, you know, you could fucking wrap it in a towel for Christ's sake. Like, as, as everyone knows, leftists are so against healthcare. Not only is that absurd, but she's not even claiming to have done anything to help in a situation yeah, yeah, where yeah. she was obviously in a position to do so if she wanted to as a wealthy individual who was on site at the time. She could have driven him to the fucking hospital. She could have done anything she wanted to do to help the situation. But what she really wanted to do was take a selfie and go, I was here at shameful situation. Yeah, she really wanted to write her op-ed. Right. So she's there doing as if she's like a fucking war reporter in, the, in, in war-torn Iraq or something. It's like, you're allowed to help people. If this actually bothered you, then why didn't you fucking help? It just tells you, like, these people don't give a shit. They only care about these tragedies in as much as it is useful to them to push some fucking political agenda, which is almost always to harm the people they're talking about anyway. Exactly. Anyway, um, this this is just... This piece is insane. Like, every part of it tries to sound as if it's leftist. They even have a line which kind of, like, self-owns, even though that's not what they're talking about. There is a sense that on everything from housing to schools, San Francisco has lost the plot. That progressive leaders here have been LARPing what? Left, left-wing values instead of working to create a livable city. And many San Franciscans have had enough. Now, there is someone LARPing left-wing values. <laughs> um, and she might know her very well. So, so this is a very, very long, very elaborate version of the New York Times pieces, which is basically, we are going to, well, it's actually kind of a fusion of all three. We're going to posture on the left. We're going to frame this as an issue of crime and homelessness and, and drug addiction when actually we have no solution to any of those things. We're going to make it seem as though I am personally effective because it's like, oh, well, it's my city. It's my city. Damn it, my city. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Um, okay, so, so if you live in a city, does that mean that your personal interests supersede the interests of the mass public of that city? That never seems to be addressed. No one ever says, like, I live in the city, which is why the city needs to do what I want instead of why I need to do something for the betterment of She's my community. She's Batman. Lib Batman. And part of the reason why she feels probably feels that it's her city is, as Chaba made fun of, that her ancestor basically owned California. So, yeah, she probably feels that way out of a sense of entitlement. But even if we ignore that uh, component. That gold nugget. Um, once again, we have the sense that these people are communicating their right-wing talking points. Stepping over people's bodies, 
blurring my eyes to not see a dull needle jabbing and jabbing again between the toes. I'm getting with the toes. They really got to hit the between the toe hypodermics. I guarantee you this is a reference to the other article, whether she mentally realized she was doing it or not. I'd gotten used to the idea that some people just want to live like that. I was even a little defensive of it. Hey, it's America. It's your choice. (laughs) The libertarian dream. Yeah, because you know what the, the progressives are saying? We want everyone shooting up between their toes. This is what we want them to do because it's a personal choice. That's what they're saying. I mean, I, I, oh my God. The, the obsession with, with the between the toes thing is also, of course, because that's where people shoot up so that's not visible. So it's to, once again, paint drug Because addicts. the crime, the, the drug is illegal. Almost people as, as liars without moral, moral character. They're being sneaky. They don't want people to know in the end because they go straight from here to the nearest welfare welfare center and get their big cartoonishly large check cut for one billion welfare dollars for being hypothetically clean or you know maybe they want to go try to find a job and it doesn't look good if you have fucking railroad tracks on your arm once again these ridiculous claims i like it's just i guess as if every homeless person is homeless for 20 years no i mean the vast majority of homeless people are trying to stop being homeless it goes without fucking saying it sucks it's horrible being homeless the chance of dying is exceptionally high. So, like, I, I, it's, it's just completely ludicrous. The whole t- between the toes thing is just meant to be disgusting and revulsing. Instead of being like, okay, this is sympathetic in any way that these people are suffering. No, it's just, um, this is an issue of libertarian choice. And I'm just not a big fan of that. I prefer better communal options. She's printing this, like, fucking utilitarian versus deontological struggle. As if this is fucking, yeah, the, the radical libertarians have taken over and they think drugs are great. I oppose the libertarians because I'm a communitarian or something. It's complete horseshit. This is this is a this is a selfish individualist conservative who looks at things that disgust her and goes, "Ew, get that out of my city. It's my city, and I want it now." And, I, 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 just, I don't know. And the second paragraph, I think, is very telling to me, which is that she says, "You can spend days debating debating San Francisco crime statistics and their meaning, and many people do." It has relatively low rates of violent crime. And when compared to a similarly sized cities, one of the lowest rates of homicide. But we what... could spend days figuring out the facts. Yeah, exactly. I can tell Let's you about, about who killed who. Bullshit. But what the city has become notorious for are crimes like shoplifting and car break-ins. Yeah. And the data show that the reputation is earned. Well, one, I, the, the car break-ins does seem, does seem true. But also, you know, it's also a product of one... One, it's not at all proving the, the case. We've talked about well, actually, what would actually ameliorate those problems, which they are unwilling to see done with progressive initiatives. But also, like the the shoplifting is also false. Uh, shoplifting is down, and also shoplifting is massively inflated because it's all reporting right. by big, big chains like Walgreens who do it to cover their own kind of profit loss to give excuses for closing shops. Or just because they want an excuse for more police. Right, to right. downsize, to light people yeah. off. It, it's it's completely falsified. And also on top of that, yes, the reputation is what it's known for because of what we've been saying. Because the reputation has been inflated and blasted out by these... It's basically just rumors. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's fine. And, and yeah, and of course, also, I think really it is telling that it's just like, yeah, we, we could talk about, as you say, Jay's statistics, what's actually happening and and the reality of the situation and how that differs from people's impressionistic anxiety. 
but no, like I still have, you know, 7,800 words to write. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really unpleasant. I mean, this, this article is actually the most obnoxious of all of them to me because there's so many attempts to make it seem as though this is a good faith effort that like, I'm really on your side, but, and none of these arguments even make sense. As you say, half the times they're referencing false data or they're referencing unfalsifiable data, emotional Um, data. It's like, there's an impression of crime. I've got pathos evidence, spectral evidence. There's a reference to the extreme crisis of fentanyl addiction without any real effort to link that to like corporate fraud and misbehavior and lack of regulatory oversight instead of it's like, as everyone knows progressives love big pharma and the fentanyl right. addiction they're getting as, as if fucking socialists are, in, are 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 happy with the pharmaceutical co- companies and the massive profiteering that goes on there yeah because we're in bed with fucking joe manchin's daughter hey he's Fuck a democrat sake. yeah supposedly so is this woman <laughs> um it's it, it goes on long huge amounts of bullshit about personal knowledge of the city and the ins and outs of drug addiction and crime and all this shit. It's like again, as if any of these things are new, as if any of these things have anything even to do with the, the, the progressive DA. There's no proof of any of that. Yeah, and it like shits on advocates fighting development for housing units. Yeah, that that part's fucking wild. They instead want a green public space horror and also yeah the, the units are of course a million dollars it's certainly going to help affordable housing i mean it's for the homeless people right she, she's advocating that we we build these and then give them the homeless people i'm sure that's what she wants we, we have to read that paragraph this this is a, this is a fucking insane section so this is someone who once again is just doing the bidding of real estate interests but pretending that that's not what's going on so they write so many paragraphs before that that you like forget what you're reading <laughs> Um, it may not have been so clear until now, but San Francisco's have been losing patience with the city's leadership for a long time, a long time, meaning much longer than the person I'm trying to get recalled. Nothing did more to alienate them over the years than how the progressive leaders managed the city's housing crisis. Consider the story of the flower farm at 770. Consider the left, the flower and the lobster. Yeah. It slopes down 2.2 acres in the sunny Southern end of the city and is filled with rundown greenhouses. The glass rundown greenhouses. These dilapidated, drug-addicted greenhouses. A chaos of birds and wild roses. What? That's literally the line. For chaos five of years, birds? Yeah, this, is, this is actually George R. R. Martin's is next novel. Is that a unit novel. of measurement? This is the sixth in the Game of Thrones series, A Chaos of Birds and Wild Roses. Um, for five years, advocates fought a developer, uh, unnamed, who was trying to put 63 units on that bucolic space. My grandfather. They wanted to sell flowers there and grow vegetables for the neighborhood, a kind of banjo and beehives utopian fantasy. I swear to God, I thought they were going to say banjo and kazooie and I was going to lose my shit. The thing they didn't want, at least not there, not on that pretty hill, was a big housing development. Oh, no shit. People in a city wanted to have some green spaces that are available to the public. And communal food sources. Wow, what monsters. What banjos and beehives utopian fantasies? Banjos and gazooies. Who wants to argue against them? Well, evidently you. In San Francisco, the word developer is basically a slur close to calling someone a Republican. Probably because they're Ah! all Republicans. What kind of monster wants to bulldoze wild roses? So they go on to say that because the people there wanted to keep this green space 
which was used for food growing and communal land. Um, that makes them assholes because they don't want to solve homelessness by building a development that, as Aiden mentioned, is wildly out of the price range of 90% of people. So that they're just angry that the development didn't get to happen because they want more houses for the ultra-rich in the middle of an incredibly gentrified city. And this is presented as some sort of alternative solution to solving homelessness. It really tells you that this person either has no idea what homelessness is or is enormously cynical and is just trying to find any way to argue for real estate interests. Or both. I'm yeah, I'm not really sure. It could just be both. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they just give the, the game away once again there, that they are... I mean, the... the, the like, the... the the developer is basically a slur. It's just parody. Like I couldn't have made up that sentence. It's yeah. so so ridiculous. It's like the, it's like the discourse when you hear like uh, I don't know Howard Schultz or so, or someone say say like we should be saying um, uh, developing person bank account heavy person instead of billionaire. Yeah. yeah, I would like to point out that earlier in the same article, she was like uh, the, the, using terms like the unhoused is like newspeak and bullshit when we should just call them homeless people. Like this is someone who's Gavin newspeak. They're against humane terms for people who are suffering, but you really calling a realtor a realtor is just like a slur. I don't know what's wrong with us. Why can't we just say people who are wealth adjacent who wish to bulldoze you? I mean, she may, may not be consistent in her claims, but at least she is consistent in her priorities. Yeah. Then she mentions, the last third of it's interesting because she actually kind of gets into why a lot of things actually happen in local elections, which is basically just bullshit. Uh, a lot of people were angry because COVID meant that they couldn't put their kids in school because it was too dangerous. And because uh, Chazza was associated with trying to keep the kids safe by not immediately sending them back to school, he got a lot of flack from people who were like, okay, but I have to work a nine to five. But that's not even his job. He doesn't send kids to school. He's no, it isn't his job. What are people fucking talking about? But basically she admits that a huge number of people are voting against him in the recall just because they're irritated about COVID and the result that it had on not being able to set, put their kids in school. And see, and this is the ignorance that recall elections rely on. Right. It, it's, it's not a referendum on the status quo, the system. It's a recall on a specific person for a specific job. You can't just say, I'm mad. Time to get rid of this random person we're going to sacrifice like with the fucking Icelandic tribes. God, this is so stupid. Then finally, because you can't even get away with like you can't even get through a supposedly left wing piece without mentioning this. They do a Willie Horton thing where they talk about how there was one guy who Chessa had like allowed to walk the streets again instead of holding in indefinite detention. Yeah, and he mowed some people who down. ended up hitting someone with a car. And it's like, okay, that that sucks. But the implication that you can only do criminal justice reform if 100% of the people who are pushed out of the carceral system never do another crime is completely absurd. They have to really, really promise to be goody two-shoes. There is not a single justice system in the world that has a 0% recidivism rate, including brutally punitive ones like the United States, where our recidivism rate is insanely high. Or, or places like Sweden. So once like again, the systems. there is not even the slimmest, most basic effort to say, let's compare and contrast the recidivism rates of crime between more humanitarian or rehabilitative justice and more punitive justice 
any sort of effort at restorative justice. There's nothing there. There's no attempt to do actual effort, like work, science, anything. It's just man did crime after liberal DA exists. Recall. That's the entire argument. It, it's, it's, it's Neanderthal shit. But that, that's where we're at. And, and it's like, this is the thinnest veneer over someone who's just reactionary concern trolling. And it, it works. It, it gets into the Atlantic. It's read by a bunch of guilty liberals. And they're like, oh, thank God. Now I don't have to do defund. Now I can finally pr stop pretending to care about black people. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, now I can finally bulldoze the greenhouses in my neighborhood. I can finally say realtor with a clear conscience and, and with a hard R. I truly <laughs> love them. Realtor lives matter. All right. Oh God, you know someone has that on a T-shirt somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, probably this chick. Oh, by the way, that um, realtor thing that she was uh, upset about—it happened anyway. Of course, it did. The farm at seven seventy Woolsey? Question mark. The developer finally has approval to turn it into housing. So, in other words, you were irritated by a minor delay in the orphan crushing machine. <laughs> the orphan crushing machine was on um, standby mode for a few weeks, and I was upset. It was on life alert. I just don't under I don't understand these people. Like, I, why doesn't she just write for the Wall Street Journal? Like, just just write for fucking write for an openly conservative publication. Like, why are you trolling? You're allowed to just be right wing. No, I, they're I self just don't get it. They're self deluded. They they can't they have enough information and like moral capacity to realize that if they write for ghouls like that, that makes them a bad person. Yeah. So they have to live in cognitive dissonance where they believe the bad things, but they perform properly for the good liberal things so they can still feel good like a human being when they go to sleep at night. Well, and also, you know, California liberals have the best parties, so you gotta tell that line because they can't get all the invites in your inbox. This is, this is the end of the piece. San Francisco's are now saying we want a fair justice system and also want to keep our car windows from getting smashed. And it's not white supremacy to hope that the schools stay open, that the teachers teach children, what? and yes, that they test to see what those kids have learned. San Franciscans tricked themselves into believing that progressive politics required blocking new construction and shunning the immigrants who came to town to code. We tricked ourselves into thinking psychosis and addiction on the sidewalk is just part of the city's diversity, even as the homelessness and housing prices drove out the city's actual diversity. Oh, you finally acknowledge the housing prices drove out the people? Now residents are coming to their senses. The, re the recalls mean there's a limit to how far we will let the decay of this great city go. And thank God. This is literally from the manifesto of Rorschach. Yeah. <laughs> this woman is, is out of her fucking mind. It is a mixture of conspiracy theory, de derangement, bl blatant far-right concern trolling. It's just, it's just bullshit in every possible level. It's not even particularly well-written. It's just like so long that you can't call it on any one thing because you've already forgotten about it because it's 800 paragraphs later. Yeah, this is it's just wild. This is one of the worst articles I've ever read in my life. <laughs> and that's saying something because it's, it's written by someone who doesn't even think of themselves as right-wing and is writing in the Atlantic, which despite being our probably most hated on organization, is not even the worst of the ones we cover. So I, The funniest, I, though. I, I don't... There's so many problems with this that I almost like... I feel like Frank Grimes is just like... I, I don't know how to react to the amount of wrong in this. Because I'm the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's just really incredible. Um, you would have to read the article to even understand what the fuck she's talking about with half of this stuff about. Please don't. But you don't. It's it's harmful. It's harmful to your brain. It's harmful to give the Atlantic clicks and, and views. Um, uh, if you want to like DDoS them, I guess. You yeah. If you if you want to like boycott <laughs> and divest the Atlantic, that seems reasonable as an alternative. Oh, didn't you hear? Boycott's not protected under the First Amendment anymore. Yeah, it's it's actually now a hate crime. Uh, uh boycott is also sexist. Uh, it's person cotting. Yeah, I would personally prefer to girl cot. Birthing person cotting. <laughs> I love that shit. Um, I I forgot that she threw in that little that little allusion to to the uh, very limited um, proposal to get rid of standardized testing. Yeah. Schools. yeah, there's this whole insane part that's about like send kids back to the meat grinder and force teachers to work against what their unions are trying to protect them from, which is mass infection with COVID. It, it's really fucked. She, she basically takes every single conservative, like suburban white person box possible. You kind of respect the bandwidth of these people. They always hit their they always hit their points. They check every box, they whack every mole. Speaking yeah. of it's their which, job, it's all they do. Before we go, I, I just want to cover the fundamental assertion that every one of these articles is getting at. Um, from like a rational reaction to this. Wait, Alex, it's not our thing to tie things up neatly and coherently. Well, I'm just saying. We have a dog article after this or something. Every this is a special episode. We're I know. Yeah. After this, um, every one of these articles presents the premise: if crime go up, then recall. Right. That, that's all they're framing. Every single one of them is: if the crime went up, then you have to recall Chessa. All right. There are so many problems with this that are never even remotely addressed in the articles. It's kind of wild. For one, crime did not universally go up. In fact, it primarily did not. It doesn't matter, Alex. They were told it went up. So they did their so, due to Which, did again, job. is the role of the media itself to cover. And in fact, they're covering it fraudulently intentionally, which they also don't mention. Two, crime going up is not a direct correlate to the DA. It's not the DA's role to be the police. It's just their role to prosecute certain criminals afterwards. If, if the police union, which has basically been on strike in San Francisco because of his election, intentionally not doing their job. And sabotaging and telling citizens that this is the DA's fault. Right. Like, if they can't take responsibility for failing to do their job, then shouldn't you vote for him more? Yeah, why don't we recall the police chief? Right. Why aren't we recalling the San Francisco police? If you're angry with them for not doing their job, then maybe you should be angry with them. It doesn't, like, it doesn't make any sense. But beyond that, this all of these things assume that the police, like the police are having their hands tied because of the progressive DA. Well, first of all, police don't stop crime. And secondly, he didn't tie their hands. They tied their own hands. And and you want to get super conspiratorial. If a DA doesn't prosecute people, then the police can like double, triple, quad feed, arrest the same people over and over and get their numbers up and get their budgets blown up. Yeah, they certainly could. Like, yeah. they could just keep arresting people and a guy gets back out on the street and then you arrest them again. Not, they don't become immune. They don't get no takesies, backsies. They're not at home base. You can just arrest them again if you see them doing shit. I don't, I don't know if, it was, if we ever mentioned it, but, but that we, we talked about the police a lot before the episode. And just to be clear... San Francisco has a, a San Francisco Police Department has an eight percent clearance rate. Yeah, that's yeah, the SFPD suck balls. Right. They don't do their jobs, which has been the case before Chessa and will be the mm -hmm. case after Chessa. They do not do their job, and even if they did, there's not really evidence that police doing their job meaningfully yeah. alters crime. 
because no. crime is a function of poverty. And basically, police exist to make people feel like their grievances and restitution have been met. I mean, the only, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they they've been shown in, in many cases to increase crime by feeding into the carceral system, which as we've talked about many times yeah. in depth. And section off crime to certain areas where they just say this area is de facto crime and this area doesn't contain crime. Windows policing. Totally. Finish, finish the thought. Out. Yeah, just that, just that. I mean, this is too large to talk about now, but you know, then then pushes people into the carceral system. They come out, say, back into San Francisco, and now because of the way things work, they can't vote, they can't get jobs, and so what are they left to do? They certainly can't scrape together money by doing. I have part-time jobs at the few people who who will hire them with a criminal record. Yep. They can't afford rent to pay them under the table less than the minimum wage. They can't. Right. They can't buy a house for a million dollars. That's for sure. There's a homeless. reason why the hyper punitive criminal justice system in the United States has resulted in the largest and most bloated pool of prisoners in the world, because it doesn't work. It doesn't rehabilitate people. It does not get them back into high-functioning positions. All it does is scapegoat them for the crime of poverty, which is the function of their society, not an individual, because they're not in any way strong enough or powerful enough individually to have been responsible for anything like that. Yeah, but see, Alex, you actually understand what crime is. What people say or mean when they say crime is getting rid of poor people. Right. But speaking of which... Whether or not crime went up, which it didn't, which is irrelevant, <laughs> you wouldn't change your position on politics based on that. It's like saying uh, crime went up, so we have to go back to segregation. Tell me. What the that fuck are you talking about? Whose politics become fascist because they're like, but the data. I can't wait till next summer when it gets leaked. That the Supreme Court is reconsidering Brown v. Board of Ed. Right, but, like, but, like, <laughs> but really, though, if someone was presenting, like, well, here's my, you know, Jordan Peterson case for, like, the higher intelligence of white people or something, it'd be like, okay, then I guess it's fine that we don't fund black education. I guess it's we should just go back to full-on slavery. Like, the, the idea that your politics should hinge entirely on some fictitious crime stat is completely insane. I don't care if crime was a thousand times what it is now. That would not change fundamentally whether we should be pursuing a humane, ethical, rational response to crime or not. It has nothing to do with the amount of crime. The solutions to things do not change based upon whether they exist. If there was a lot of crime, then you need a lot of criminal justice reform. It, just, it doesn't even address the underlying premise, which is that the way to solve crime is not through utterly bankrupt and failed carceral systems they have not worked this entire time they will not work no matter how much crime goes uh, up or down uh briefly you mean morally bankrupt but absolutely loaded to the oh teeth yeah incredibly profitable but morally bankrupt and intellectually bankrupt yeah i it's just you know i just wish that obviously these are just kind of like shelling into the void these pieces there's no you know interviewee or interviewer but when these people are, you know, being interviewed, I just wish someone would, when, when they say bullshit like this, when they blame the homeless or, or even worse, more insidiously, pretend to be on the side of the homeless as victims of someone like Boudin's failed policies, quote unquote, they would just ask them like, oh, so like, are you in favor of the idea of UBI or like a, a jobs guarantee? Right, right. Uh, Which would like I'm with cool. all the things that they're they're claiming to want that these people should have jobs available to them, and because 
you know, they would they would at best sputter and divert, and at worst be like, well, no, that's that's Chavez. That's communism. <laughs> no, they're they're in the favor of the Robocop door crushing their head. That's what they're in favor of. Me dread. Or whatever, dread. They're 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 in favor of the blast door smushing the homeless. That's their solution. They're in favor of Dred Scott. Yeah. <laughs> Judge Dred Scott is a good uh what, what what's that thing again? I forget the term every time. I don't know if it's technically a portmanteau, but it's whatever. a combo. But yeah, I mean the, the last part I wanted to mention about all this insane crime shit is they make it seem as though if you fight progressive politics, like if you if you stop having progressive politics or if you actively resist progressive politics, well that means you're anti-crime. They never actually point to any productive way of solving the problem. They never say, like, as as we mentioned before, like who's running against Chessa? Who was, who was the alternative and what was the political alternative? There's not even a solution mentioned because they don't have a solution. And, and, and like right-wing billionaires in the Republican Party do not have a solution to crime other than what we've mentioned, which is just like fascism. So it's, it's, it's a completely absurd binary between our solution, which actually has very good reasons to believe it could work, and no solution that's somehow presented as, well, of course we go with no solution. I just it doesn't no it, just it, vicious human immiseration is there right solution. it's just don't fix it so it's hilarious to me that all these articles are like look at how broken our city has become when their solution is don't fix it because they have no solution to these problems what they don't like is that someone is trying to have a solution to these problems yeah it's almost like that's not fair we're not playing on even playing fields if you try policies versus yeah. having non non policies that are just kill people and throw them in jail they don't like that they have to see the homeless, not that there is homelessness. They don't like that they have to see people who are drug addicted, not that there's drug addiction. That's what they want. They want them basically quietly gassed. They want them removed. And, and here's the next level. Their worldview would fall apart if these vices and ills went away, because then they can't morally blanket judge people. Right. So in fact, it, it's, an, it's an even double corrupt bargain where... It's in their interest to keep these social ills going. That's the entire MO of the Republican Party is to make sure governments are dysfunctional so that their their anti-government positions can like are legitimate. Th that's how it works. It shouldn't be surprising to people. It also shouldn't be news. It's like yeah, it's just how how the manufacturing of unemployment helps discipline labor. In this case, having something that people find viscerally repugnant like seeing uh, a filthy drug addict on the street helps distract them from things that if they were able to walk down a street where they couldn't see where they didn't see those things because those people have been taken care of given the resources to live a healthy fulfilling life they'll be able to then consider things like the incredibly unethical behaviors of large corporate interests in silicon valley or in real estate valley whatever they call that side of right. san francisco um yeah it's really gross and and most of these people are very well aware of what they're doing when they write things like this oh yeah it, it is very much as we've seen even their narratives are coordinated as dysfunctional as they are i don't think they all went in and were like i'm gonna study the toes specifically out of my own personal interest <laughs> yeah right it's like literally the talking point scripts they it's literally the have shit. the fucking talking points and it's and the same obscure really shit uh, yeah, I also had my home broken into and my dog didn't bark. It's just, I, I don't know. It's, it's just really embarrassing. So anyway, so far, you've been listening to us uh, in our classic style, talk around, inside, outside, bloviate. 
the issues at hand. And while we value and treasure what we provide to you, uh, we thought that we would go a little further on this episode and uh, interview Chessa himself. So we uh, will now proceed to the second part of the episode in which we have uh, recorded a, a pretty good length interview with Chessa about his recall, about what he sees for the future, and, and so on and so forth. Stay tuned. All right, folks, as promised, we are now going to be joined by Jason Lamai's cousin, uh, Rhodes Scholar, public defender, and until recently, San Francisco uh, progressive district attorney, Chessa Boudin. Welcome to the show. Glad uh, Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, yeah, we, I think we each have a few questions, but we'll, you know, for the sake of time, just get right into it. So to start off, um, why don't you tell us a bit about, like, the positive impact you're able to make on San Francisco, maybe some places you... Uh, you know, wish you could have done more or didn't go far enough. For sure. Well, just, you know, for, for a little context, I was elected in 2019, took office in 2020 uh, to what was supposed to be a four-year term. And, um, you know, I was recalled in the middle of my term. The recall effort started really within days of, of my inauguration. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's a little frustrating for me, of course, is, we, you know, we expected to have four years. That's what we were elected to. And we know that changing things like public safety or crime trends is um, really multifaceted, multifactored. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't often happen even in a full first term. But when I first got sworn in, just two months after that, we had the COVID pandemic shut down our courthouse, shut down our office, and really redefine the way all of us live our lives. And so it made a, a really, really major uh, hurdle for us to try to overcome and then I spent much of my term trying to fend off these recalls. So it, it was ultimately a major distraction to what we hoped to get accomplished, even though we never expected we'd achieve all of our goals in one or two or even three years. Um, that being said, I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff we did accomplish, including a more proactive approach to public safety. You know, a traditional prosecutor will wait for a crime to be committed and then hope the police make an arrest. And if they do, they'll try to punish the person who got caught. And the problem with that, of course, is that we're, we're only relying on deterrence through more and more increasingly punitive responses to what ends up being a really small percentage of people who actually get arrested for crimes. We tried to be proactive in a number of ways. One was just to take an example from a category that I find personally to be the most threatening and the most dangerous. Um, not just in San Francisco, but across the country, which is gun violence. Instead of waiting for police to bring us a gun case or a shooting case, um, we looked at the data and we saw that the vast majority of, of, of gun crimes and increasingly were related to what we call ghost guns, guns that have no serial number that are manufactured with the with, really with the design that they be untraceable, um, that they not have to go through the normal background checks or controls before they're purchased. Um, in other words, guns that are designed to be used in crimes. And we saw that trend in San Francisco and California, across the country. And so instead of just sitting back and being reactive when a new gun case came our way, we went after the manufacturers of ghost guns. In fact, we sued three separate companies that are profiting by dumping illegal firearms into the hands of criminals. That proactive approach is something I'm really proud of. And we did it in a number of other areas. Um, 
But let me talk about another uh, totally, totally different uh, achievement that I'm proud of, and that's the historic expansion of our victim services work. Too often in this country's criminal legal system, the interests of victims are really reduced to punishment and vengeance. And victims are only uplifted, their voice is only amplified when they're calling for the death penalty or for life without parole. We know that victims have lots and lots of needs and, and they're not all the same. Um, different survivors have different desires. Um, but we do a really terrible job in this country of providing the resources to, for example, reimburse medical bills or provide for therapy or trauma-informed care to pay for burial and funeral expenses. Basic things that survivors or families of victims of violent crime desperately need simply aren't there because we're too focused on building new jails and prisons and on punitive responses. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. We can seek a prison sentence against someone and also provide for reimbursement for medical expenses for the victim, right? Um, but that whole area of work that we did, providing housing for domestic violence survivors, providing transportation for victims who needed to get to a place of safety, providing language access for survivors of crime that don't speak English so they can understand the, the, the proceedings in their case. Those are areas where we made massive expansions. Um, and I'm really proud of, of that work as well. Um, happy to talk about other achievements and, and work I'm proud of, but I know you have other questions, so let me stop there. Yeah, I think that that was all very informative. Um, we wouldn't really have gotten a sense from that, though, from media. Um, we, we, you know, we're primarily a media criticism podcast. Uh, and we noticed when we were doing our own episode on this that there was a really intense pushback against what you were trying to do, not only by local groups, which is sometimes the case, but by the entire national press. There was really just heinous coverage, uh, even in fairly liberal papers. Why do you think this is the case? You know, I think there's something sensational about crime and violence. And, um, you know, there's the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And, um, you know, we can go back uh, before some of our lifetimes and think of really high profile examples of um, kind of misrepresentations of crime being used in ways that are intentionally political, driving racist divisions between communities of color, um, even shaping the outcome of presidential races, as in the famous case of Willie Horton. Um, so these aren't new phenomena, they're not specific to me or to San Francisco, really it's part of a playbook we see across the country where police unions, Republicans, their allies will use fear mongering. They will exploit tragedies, the kind of tragedies, to be clear, that occur in every jurisdiction in this country. But in jurisdictions where we're talking about criminal justice reform or police accountability or corporate accountability, those tragedies will be exploited in ways that um, really conflate criminal justice reform with lack of safety. You never see that happen in red jurisdictions. You never see it happen to traditional prosecutors who serve often as a mouthpiece for the police, who serve in ways that are really reactive to crime rather than proactive about prevention. Um, and one of the things that, that I learned you know, over the last couple of years and that we've seen across this country is that you know, whether it's me in San Francisco, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in Los Angeles, Kim Fox in Chicago, Rachel Rollins in Boston, so many others who are trying to really redefine how we do the work of public safety, how prosecutors' role is understood to really be a lawyer for the people, to really lift up victims and really hold the powerful accountable, to enforce laws equally. When you start doing that, when you prosecute billionaires for wage theft, when you prosecute police for excessive force, you make very powerful enemies. And they are able to amplify crimes, again, that occur in every jurisdiction, 
right? I mean, San Francisco has has always been and continues to be a very, very safe city. But we're a city. We have wealth inequality. We have far too easy access to firearms. We have lots of things that lead to crime. And what happened under my administration, as we've seen in other progressive jurisdictions, is crime gets weaponized in ways that just doesn't happen in traditional or red jurisdictions. And um, they did it really effectively. Look, I mean, the police union has a couple thousand members. And everywhere in San Francisco, they respond to crimes. And under my administration, you know, they, they go up and they talk to victims and they say, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I wish we could help. But, you know, this DA just won't prosecute. Don't forget to vote in the recall. And that's a, a really difficult kind of a, a communications war to respond to when they have those kinds of numbers, that level of direct first response access to victims, and no real accountability because it's not documented. They turn off their body cameras. Um, it's a very challenging um, and of course, they're also leaking stories and information and victim contact information to news media. And, and let's be clear, most victims are angry. You don't buy I don't blame them for that. You've just had your house burglarized. You've just survived a sexual assault. Your son's just been murdered. Of course, you're angry. And, you know, police and, and some media outlets are really good at exploiting that anger and that 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 harm, that fear. Um, and using it to channel um, very particular political outcomes. I want to talk about a, a very specific uh, framing that they've made a lot of hay out of, which is the press pretty consistently was trying to say, look, San Francisco is this overwhelmingly democratic city. Uh, everyone there is so progressive. But even they, even far left San Francisco, you know, couldn't handle this radical leftist uh, insurgency. And, and they're really trying to say, um, you know, third way triangulation and conservative democratic politics uh, are the solution, that that was somehow the obvious return to form. Um, you know, wh what's the problem with that narrative, you think? There's a lot of things wrong with that narrative. It's really dishonest in a lot of ways. So let me give you a couple points. I mean, one thing is, you know, San Francisco is a progressive, solidly democratic town, but that doesn't mean we don't have our share of conservatives, of Trump supporters, of, of folks who may be registered as Democrats, but may be would be Republicans in a place like Ohio or Pennsylvania, where there's a viable Republican Party, right? Um, look, you don't need to go any further than the last presidential election. 55,000 San Franciscans voted for Trump. For point of comparison, when I was elected in 2019, I was elected with 86,000 votes, including second and third choice, because we do rank choice here, right? Um, so support for Trump, the most radical right-wing, offensive, uh, undemocratic Republican president this country's probably ever seen. In San Francisco, even after his first term, there were 55,000 votes for him. Uh, let me pivot to some other data that I think illustrates the, the, the same point, maybe differently, the other side of the coin. I mentioned that when I was elected in 2019 through ranked choice, including first, second, and third choice votes, I had 86,000 votes. That, that was about 42% of the turnout for the DA's race in that election. In 2020, in the recall, despite two years of a massive media and you know, uh, onslaught, $9 million spent to, um, you know, to attack me and my policies, despite the kind of national environment in which there was this wave of propaganda and, and attacks on progressives and reforms, uh, despite two years of tremendous anxiety around COVID and the pandemic and what that did to all of our lives, um, we actually got more votes than we did in 2019. 
right? And, and, and uh, we had over 100,000 votes opposing the recall. That's 15,000 votes more than I got in 2019. And in percentage terms, it was 45% of the vote. And, and that's in a context where we didn't have another candidate to run against, right? I mean, we had been made a scapegoat. Our policies had been made a scapegoat. I personally had been kind of demonized on Twitter and social media in ways that were totally disproportionate to the power that I or any district attorney has. And yet, the policies that we were advocating, things like reducing juvenile incarceration or our independent innocence commission that exonerated people who'd been wrongly convicted of crimes or um, expanding diversion programs to get folks who were arrested connected with services that address root causes of crime like mental illness and drug addiction. Those kinds of policies, police accountability, our worker protection unit are overwhelmingly popular in San Francisco. I know it because I was out there on the streets talking to voters all day, every day during the campaign. I know it because that's what polls tell us. I know it because the recall proponents lied to voters and said they believed in criminal justice reform as well. Um, and yet we were in a very difficult context with no other candidate, no track record, no platform to run against. Um, and uh, as I said, a national environment in which people are frustrated for good reason with how the last two years of our lives have been. So um, I think it's important to recognize San Francisco is both less progressive than it sometimes is portrayed. Um, we've never really had a, a true progressive mayor, for example, at least not in the last 20 years. Um, and it's also true that the progressive base of support that I and my policies had is growing. Yeah, I, I want to speak briefly. I mean, I, I know most uh, outlets made a very brief mention of the Republican billionaire funding the recall effort. Uh, and I think that that certainly is, is a huge part of what happened. But it's also notable that some of the Democratic uh, leadership really was not behind you in the way that you would expect them to have been. Um, London Breed did not really come out behind you. Uh, even Joe Biden didn't say anything until after the election had happened. And even then, he, he basically repeated a lot of these propaganda talking points. Um, what Do you think there's still really room for progressives to work within the Democratic Party and, and to try to, you know, change it for the better? Or are we facing just two, you know, recalcitrant an opposition here? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It's a tough question. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely room for third party candidates. I think there's also room for a progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And we see, obviously, the platform folks like AOC and Ayanna Pressley and others have, have, have developed. Um, you know, I, I was proud to receive the endorsement of the San Francisco Democratic Party. Um, and, and that endorsement, you know, was overwhelming. Only two members of the party voted, uh, you know, to support the recall against me. And those two members were both people who ran against me for DA in 2019 and lost, right? So um, everybody else either opposed it or just abstained. And of course, I would have loved to have seen more people, you know, it would have been great to have Nancy Pelosi and, um, and and President Biden and Gavin Newsom speak out against the recall of a fellow Democratic elected official. Um, but, you know, I think in a city like San Francisco, where you have, you know, only one party that's capable of winning elections, which is the Democratic Party, it gets infiltrated by a lot of would-be Republicans in other jurisdictions. And, um, and so we have a really conservative or, you know, in local parlance, moderate uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And, and what you end up having in many races is a, a moderate against a progressive um, in the way that in, you know, Connecticut or Ohio or Pennsylvania, you might have a Republican versus Democrat. And, and so that's sort of what we saw in San Francisco was that the moderates, most of the moderates in San Francisco politics refused to take a position one way or the other on the recall. And behind the scenes, they supported it. 
most of the progressives or you know other folks who just were looking at substance and data and evidence and not being you know driven by pure kind of party politics came out against the recall. Um, and that's true of a lot of people who didn't support me, a lot of people, a lot of organizations that didn't support me getting elected in 2019, but saw how dishonest the recall was, how much it was just straight up lying to voters, saw where the money was coming from, Republican billionaires overwhelmingly, saw the work that we've been doing in office under really historically difficult circumstances and said he should finish his four-year term. And then voters, not the mayor, should choose who the next district attorney is, whether it's him or someone else. Yeah, um, I think I think for my part, I'll, I'll just leave with one last uh, sort of bigger picture question. That I think you're well positioned to answer, which is, um, you know, there's been a lot of energy for the last few decades on progressive causes. We've had oppositions to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've had Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders attempting uh, elections, the Black Lives Matter movement and all these different things. But recently we've been dealing with a Trump administration, conservative Biden administrations, COVID, austerity, you know, elections like your recall, the Roe versus Wade repeal. It feels like at least recently, it's it's one step forward, two steps back. Um, what would you say to other leftists and progressives, especially younger people who feel kind of hopeless in this moment where they thought they were making headway and now it seems to be slipping away? It's frustrating. I mean, look, I won a four-year term and I got booted from office two and a half years in. So I believe me when I say I feel the frustration, share, share the frustration. Uh, I think it's important to remember a couple of things. One is, and you know, to quote a quote that's some, somewhat almost cliche by now, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards towards freedom, right? Or bends towards justice. And, um, you know, I, I really do believe that. I think the nature of social change is not linear. It's not, it's mostly, if you look at history, it's not super rapid. And when it is super rapid, often it's not sustainable. It doesn't mean we don't have an urgent need for change, especially in areas like mass incarceration or climate change, right? We do, we have an urgent need for action. And yet the nature of our political structures is that the wealthy and the powerful, are deeply entrenched and it's not easy to uh, root them out even when you win elections. Um, so I think, you know, for me, there's a couple of lessons. One is we can't become overly fixated on the specific outcome of a particular election or even a particular policy struggle. We need to think about every election, every policy debate, every movement as part of a broader long-term strategy for education, for inclusion, for coalition building. And, um, you know, there's a great book that uh, is sort of a lawyer's lawyer book, but it's called Success Without Victory. And it's about legal struggles, litigation, where the lawyers who filed the cases never really expected that they were going to win in court, that a judge was going to grant what they were requesting. And yet they had success through the process. And I think a lot of movement building, a lot of organizing is like that. Some labor campaigns, maybe you don't unionize and yet the process can be tremendously empowering. It can be educational. It can achieve uh, concessions from the employer that you never would have gotten, but for the work that went into organizing. So I think it's really important to remember that. Um, and I think also from a historical perspective, you know, my parents spent most of my life in prison. My mom did 22 years in prison. My dad did 40 years and was only released about six, seven months ago now. My adoptive brother, Zay Dorn, has a podcast that's out right now that takes a look at that history, the history that led to my parents' incarceration, um, The kind of does a deep dive on the history of the Weather Underground, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army in the 60s and 70s. Uh, his podcast is called Mother Country Radicals, and it's really worth listening to, both because it's well done and it's a fascinating history, but also because it's a reminder of some of the real risks and perils of letting that frustration and that righteous rage with the slow 
pace of change or sometimes feeling like we're moving backwards as in this moment with the U.S. Supreme Court or the recalls against progressives. And remembering that even as correct as our analysis may be, as righteous as our cause may be, tactics and strategy matter and patience is a virtue. And um, going too far too fast can lead to really dire outcomes that can actually do more damage than good. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from from those not so distant histories of people like my own parents about mistakes that set the movement back more than they advanced it. You hear that audience? Check that podcast out. You know, that is a perfect transition, uh, Chessa. One, what you're talking about, that lawyer's book, um, it, it, what immediately came to mind for me was something like Scope's Monkey Trial, where even though they know they're going to lose the case, they know ultimately because science is on their side, they're going to win the history there, and they and they have. But this is, you know, to my first question, um, I think you spoke to it already, but why do you think the media harped so much on our family's history? Our, you know, our family's history with leftist politics, with constitutional lawyering, with, as you said, that the, 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 the salaciousness of the crime. Do you think it was just low-hanging fruit for them? Yeah, in some ways, look, I mean, I think we can all be frustrated with the media coverage we get. I think probably we all are when we see our name in the press. You know, the reporter might think they're doing a puff piece and, you know, we're going to quibble with a couple details or choices of adjectives. Um, obviously, uh, I wish we had different media coverage in San Francisco and in our race. And look, maybe our family's history was a distraction in some ways. Um, I think, you know, big picture, this is also a question of what consumers of media are looking for. And especially in this day and age, you know, we know that um, they can really easily measure clicks and read throughs and conversion rates to subscriptions and I think and I've heard this from a lot of editors um, in, in local press. They've sort of said, look, if your name is in the headline, it, it generates clicks. And so even if we're writing a story about crime in Oakland, which isn't your jurisdiction, if we work your name in there, more people are going to read it. And so, you know, on the one hand, we can be upset at journalists or, 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 or mainstream media for that. But in some ways, it's also more a reflection of the of the kind of trends and what people are clicking on and reading and I think that's a broader conversation about the failures of education, about the ways in which social media have really reduced a lot of policy conversations that need to be nuanced and need to be in the weeds to sound bites and, and to headlines. Um, and that's an area where, for better or worse, I don't think I or you know maybe the broader progressive movement has done a great job. I think we're often too analytical um, in ways that might be full of integrity and, and honesty, but often lose uh, the ability to connect to folks who maybe aren't going to take the time to become experts on the policy issues. I think that's a good answer. Um, I think you've also answered my next question, but I'll, I'll see if I can pose in a way that we can maybe tease out some more ideas. Um, what role do you think the pandemic played in undermining your work, which I think you've addressed a little bit, but um, do you also think that the wealthy opponents who organized your recall essentially were able to successfully launder the social struggles of COVID as somehow your fault, your failures, the, the failure of your policies? So I think, you know, as with most issues and, and maybe uh, as an example of my, uh, my self-criticism and my last answer to you all about being too nuanced, I think it cuts both ways. I think COVID um, both was a driver of drastically reduced crime in San Francisco. And, and obviously that's not the perception, but if you look at reported crime during the you know 912 days I was in office and you compare it with the 912 days before I was in office, we saw a, a drop of about 20% in reported crime, both violent and 
nonviolent crime fell by double digits. Um, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 fewer reported crimes during my tenure than in the same period prior to my administration. I would love it if I could take credit for that and if my policies could, but in reality, I think, um, you know, I think district attorneys and the policies we implement take time to yield results. I think COVID shut down tourism. Most businesses weren't open. So we didn't have bar fights. We didn't have people out, you know, uh, on college campuses getting date raped in the same proportion that we normally would, right? Really serious crimes. And, and also, um, you know, tourists coming to see our great city and having their cars broken into dramatic reduction for reasons that have very little to do with me or my policies and much more to do with just the broader trends in society during the pandemic. By the same token, and this is the other sort of other side of the coin, um, COVID led to um, a tremendous amount of anxiety. It led to school closures. It led to a surge in uh, in fear and racism and hate crimes. It led to uh, increase in gun violence all across the country. It led to contributed to all these things, right? Um, and it also contributed to people, I think, perceiving the world around them, especially in places like San Francisco, in ways that were much more reliant on social media and, and the internet um, than what had been true previously when we'd walk around our neighborhood and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd go out to restaurants. And um, it also meant that our streets for much of my tenure were abandoned. People weren't out and about. They weren't walking to work. We didn't have commuters or tourists. And, and that meant that the homeless population was much more visible. And in San Francisco, a lot of people associate homelessness with, with crime or with lack of safety. Uh, it also displaced certain categories of crime. So people who earn their living committing crimes, property crime, shoplifting or car break-ins, all of a sudden started targeting garages in neighborhoods that traditionally had never been, um, you know, had never experienced significant amounts of crime. And that meant we had an entire universe of folks who maybe were indifferent when there was a murder in a mostly black neighborhood or when a tourist car got broken into. But if it's their garage, that's close to home. That's home. And so it kind of mobilized politically a group of folks that otherwise might not have been disturbed by the policies um, that we were implementing or the reforms that we were we were we were spearheading. Um, so I, I do think that COVID and, and look, I'll, I'll give one last example of how it hurt. Um, a huge part of the work of an elected official, especially a citywide elected official um, who's new, who's an outsider, right, who's not part of the political family, uh, the, the city family, as they call it here in San Francisco. A big part of the job is to, is to build relationships, to show up for communities, for groups, for Democratic clubs, for other elected officials, for uh, cultural events. And I only had two months to do that. And then everything got shut down. And so it was really easy for my detractors, for the police union, for the folks uh, who, you know, the moderates, um, for the folks who wanted a scapegoat, for other areas of, of failed policy, like our failure to build housing or our failure to provide public health services that prevent fatal overdoses or treat mental illness. All the folks responsible for those failures were all too happy to scapegoat criminal justice reform. And it was really hard to break through the stereotype, partly based on family history, as you mentioned, Alex, partly, um, you know, just based on, um, you know, stuff that our detractors had said even during the 2019 campaign, because I wasn't able to be in person with people. And it's just not the same building relationships, building trust and getting critical feedback from the community, making the community feel heard and, and actually being able to empower community leaders to play a role in policy generation. 
and creation and implementation. We couldn't do that stuff in the ways that um, we would have been able to because of the pandemic. And it, it came at a very, very high political cost. Okay. So if you had to summarize it for people, uh, what would you say is the number one cause of crime? And also, what's the number one way to help combat the perception of a rise in crime? Those are really big, difficult questions. And I think it, it depends what kind of crime we're talking about. I mean, I think interpersonal violence, domestic violence, homicides between people who know each other is like really different than most property crime, right? But let me answer this way. In San Francisco back in 2018, right, before I was elected, um, according to the Board of Supervisors, a legislative analyst report that they published, about 75% of people booked into the county jail for any crime were drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. In other words, maybe it's not a cause, but there's a strong correlation between people who end up getting arrested and people who have what I would consider first and foremost public health issues that need to be addressed. And so from my perspective, and this is what we campaigned on in 2019, we will make our communities safer if we are proactive about addressing those public health concerns before a crime is committed. So another way to illustrate this point, in San Francisco, the county jail is the number one provider of, of mental health services. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. One is county jails are not good places to give people health services. They're generally unsafe. They're generally unsanitary. People generally feel like they're coerced to be there because they are. They don't have a choice. They can't leave. Um, but more importantly, if somebody's in the county jail, then by definition, they were arrested for victimizing somebody or the community at large. And we should not be waiting. If we're serious about public safety, if we're serious about victims' rights, we should not be waiting until a crime is committed to intervene in ways that are humane and that can prevent crime. So we need to have universal treatment on demand. We need to have 24-7 access to residential beds for people who need to detox, for people who need mental health interventions. And of course, not everybody will avail themselves of those resources. But if we don't have them available in the first place, as we don't in San Francisco, then we are guaranteeing that more crimes will be committed. Um, so I think that's really a, a critical lens that most district attorneys don't, don't even bring to the conversation because again, it's not their job. Right? We don't have social workers. We don't run drug treatment facilities. Um, that's not what we do. We, you know, traditionally we have lawyers who present evidence and seek convictions. Um, and I've been trying to broaden the understanding of what our job should be when it comes to promoting public safety and enforcing laws equally. But I don't have the purse strings. I can't unilaterally create those drug treatment programs or those reentry housing services for people who need them. Um, the other thing, and and I'll I'll just you know kind of mention this briefly, but if 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 you're someone who subscribes to the prosecution and punishment are deterrence theories of public safety, right? Like the way that we make our community safe is we have really severe punishment on those who are arrested, and that will deter other people from committing crime. And this is one of the three or four most commonly discussed theories of um, what the purpose of the criminal justice system is. Um, there's a lot of research from the U.S. and around the world uh, that looks at massive amounts of data and, and, and considers this question, like, what is an effective way to prevent crime? What kinds of policing, what kinds of punishment, um, what kinds of social services? And one thing we know is that the, the severity of punishment is a really, really weak correlation with deterrence. 
for reasons that are pretty obvious. First of all, most people don't get arrested for crimes. Most crimes don't get reported. Most reported crimes don't result in an arrest. Most arrests don't result in a conviction. So there's this real kind of attenuation problem between the punishment that a particular prosecutor meets out and what's going through the mind of a person who's about to commit a crime. There's another problem, which is an obvious one and maybe close to home for our family. My mother didn't participate in the really horrific crime that she was arrested for and, and that she and my dad served so many decades behind bars for because she'd done some kind of a sophisticated analysis of what the likely punishment was or whether there was the death penalty or not in her state. She committed her crime because she didn't think she was going to get caught. She didn't think anybody was going to get killed. She didn't think anybody was going to get hurt. And she certainly didn't think she was going to get caught. And the reality is most people who commit crimes don't think they're going to get caught. If they think they're going to get caught, they probably won't commit the crime, which is why the National Institute for Justice says in, in a, a report that they did on deterrence that the single most effective deterrent is certainty of arrest. When, when you're in a jurisdiction where there's a high percentage of arrests for crimes that are committed, people are less likely to commit crimes. I don't care how drug addicted or mentally ill you may be. I don't care how irrational your thinking may be. If you know that you're going to get arrested, you're going to avoid committing a crime because it's, you may be high risk, you may not be risk averse, but it's going to ruin your day if you get arrested, at least your day, regardless of what happens next, right? You're going to jail. You're not going to get that next high. You're not going to go home to your family. You're going to lose your job. It's bad news. But in a place like San Francisco, the police are only making arrests in about 1% of reported car break-ins, right? There's a 95% chance in San Francisco that if you commit a crime and someone reports it, which often doesn't happen, you won't get arrested anyway. So the notion that me ratcheting down some punitive policies or seeking less draconian sentences is somehow creating open season for people to commit crimes is totally disconnected from both empirical data about crime in San Francisco and nationwide data about what actually is effective when it comes to deterrence. I think that, that's all I got. I'll hand it off to Aiden's few questions. Right, I think we'll, we'll leave out with a, with a couple. Um, first, I mean, since we're basically on the topic already, I guess, um, you know, in the U.S., as you've as you've basically explained, we largely understand justice as a, a punitive process, um, as opposed to what most progressive activists and politicians uh, would like to view it as, which is as a rehabilitative one. Um, but that's a difficult thing to kind of communicate to people who have been so um, informed by history, by society, by pop me media, by the internet, that it's supposed to be about crime and punishment. What do you think we can do to kind of shift that thinking in the public sphere towards uh, rehabilitation? We often hear the argument that, you know, when you talk about rehabilitation services or reentry services, right, education for people in state prison or housing for people getting released from prison, you know, you often hear the argument, wait a second, I pay my taxes. I work really hard to put food on the table for my family. I've never committed a crime. Now you're just going to give people as a reward that's going to incentivize crime, right? That's the sort of the argument we often hear. And I think it's problematic on a lot of levels, but let me just use that as a jumping off point for, for a, a brief answer here. Um, if we lift 
the bottom. If we have a more robust social safety net for everybody, right? If we had universal access to healthcare and to education and to housing, for example, the way they do in many Northern European countries, then people wouldn't be so upset at those kinds of things being provided to jails and prisons. And we would make a dramatic impact on reducing recidivism or the rate of rearrest after people are released. Uh, Part of the problem is that in this country, and this is something that both leads to crime in the first place and makes it harder politically to provide the kinds of interventions after people are convicted of crimes that can really address root causes and, and be effective, um, is that we don't have a meaningful social safety net. Education is massively expensive. Healthcare is inaccessible to so many. Housing, impossible to attain for far too many millions in this country. And in a context where those kinds of basic Again, in, in other wealthy developed countries, it's unthinkable that you wouldn't be able to get access to basic medical services, no matter how poor you are. In a country where you know wealth is the end all and be all of those kinds of things, um, it becomes really frustrating to, to the working poor, to the middle class, to see folks convicted of crimes getting those services, even when those services are necessary to break a cycle of, of, of crime and, and incarceration. So. I really think the answer, as much as we could talk about the politics within the criminal legal system and, and, and policy realm, I think you've got to zoom out. I mean, the, the, the criminal justice system is a dumping ground for problems that start with failures to build housing, with failures to invest in education or employment opportunities, with historic institutionalized racism. And um, the system, you know, the criminal legal system is really the place where all that gets dumped and then amplified. In, in ways that uh, are, are profoundly problematic and which can never entirely be solved unless we look upstream at some of those um, some of those other related systems. Absolutely. I know, I know we uh, probably could keep going for a long time. I am, I am running out of time, unfortunately, but I'm more than happy to continue the conversation with you all uh, in a few weeks if, if you're so inclined. Sure. So well, I, I, I just end with a very, very quick question, which is, uh, what are, you, what are you looking forward to in the future? Are you still interested in public office? Have you thought about it? Where are you at? You know, yeah, I mean, definitely it, it's it's on the table. I mean, I, I loved the impact we were able to make over the last couple of years. I'm really proud of a lot of the work that, that we achieved. Um, and, you know, for me, I've never been someone who sought out a life as an elected official. It's not the end goal for me. I want to find ways that I, with my particular skills and life experience, can support the values in the communities um, that I represent. And if that means running for office again, I'm open to that. If it means um, doing something very different, you know, being a litigator, uh, which I love doing as well, or being a teacher, which I love doing. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really committed to the values and to the movement. Um, and I recognize that a movement cannot succeed in the long run if it's totally dependent on one person or a small group of people. It's gotta be diverse. It's got to have a deep bench of candidates and of leaders and of ideas. Um, and so I really want to respect the process that led me to run in the first place. And it may lead someone else to be a better candidate for district attorney or mayor or whatever the next office is. And I want to play a role in supporting them with everything from, you know, knocking on doors to fundraising um, to helping generate and implement um, data driven policies that make our communities stronger and more resilient. Well, fantastic. fantastic. I look forward to following you and whatever you do next. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I really yeah. enjoyed the conversation and uh, hope we can do it in person one of these days. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Chess. We'd love to have you on in the future. Sounds yeah, good. I'll look forward to you. Going forward. Have a good vacation. Right. Thanks, all. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chess. Take care.
Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoy what we do here at the Non-Essential Workers Podcast and you want to support us, please check us out at patreon.com slash non-essential workers podcast or by clicking the link below. For five bucks, you get access to the Patreon feed and twice. That's right, twice as many total episodes. How many more? I'll say it one more time for the back. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks and see you next time.